Welcome to another episode and riveting episode of Hollowed Waters Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Sapinski and head Trump Troubadour to take you on the journey today that we have with a absolutely wonderful guest and an absolutely wonderful topic. As we fly high in our drone throughout the galaxy looking for trout, Atlantic salmon steelhead places so we can get our fixation for all you cognito ergo sum thinking fly fishers, ladies and men that love to go on to a topic and explore every facet of it. We don't dumb it down. We don't give you the skinny. We give you the deep and the interesting and the sublime and all the little things that you need to know about what we're talking about. So we are in our day 673 of not getting shot down in our drone as we cruise around, take pictures of all these wonderful places. And um, it has been a very interesting couple of weeks um, and it's been actually good. We've had no smoke in the air, so we've been breathing. So the God's given right for every human being and animal on this planet to breathe clean air has been fulfilled. So thank you very much. Canada and Mr. Trudeau for giving us clean air and thank you for the rains that have come. Uh, our weather has actually been very cool here in Michigan and some places in the country it seems to get be getting a little cooler after the heat wave we had. We've been watching a lot of tennis so we're getting ready for the U.S. Open. I'm cheering for all my little peeps out there um, and um, you know we um, also have been uh, watching soccer uh, transactions going on. Kane, my, uh, my, Harry Kane might be going to Byron. If he does, that's pretty much locked up the Champions League for him. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, the Giants are playing in a scrimmage tonight with the Detroit Lions, where my wife is on to being a Giants fan from New York. And uh, so much going on right now. Summer's winding down. I've been having fun with my Spring Creek, uh, fishing my little trichos. I'm a trico, trichomaniac. Trichomaniac, I think it's called, and um, trichomaniac and trichomaniac, and um, it's been really great. It's been cool nights. We had got down into the fifties last night, so it's been wonderful. Um, also, um, you know, uh, we've uh, sad news. We've had a terrible fish kill on the Beaver Creek. Uh, excuse me, on the Beaver Creek in Maryland, and it was a beautiful Stone Spring Creek near Hagerstown. And two days ago, um, a kill, they had a huge storm and um, they had heavy golf ball sized hail. And after the storm, they found all the trout dead, the beautiful wild brown trout and rainbows in that river. They they estimate 95% of the population was gone. Uh, I, am, I am devastated because it's a stream that I fished practically twice a week when I lived in Washington, DC. And it was a stream that I begged to get brown trout into. I wrote letters to the uh, Maryland DNR to start start resurrecting the brown trout that were in that creek and they finally did and TU and everybody did a wonderful job and now they died and I am just I'm losing sleep over it I hope they found out what happened um, there's a hatchery at the head of the of Beaver Creek and my my stinking suspicion is probably something leaked from the hatchery in that storm uh, but it's it's devastating news uh, so uh 
We wish the people at Beaver Creek the best. Um, we also wish the people of Ukraine the best um, with the ongoing crisis there. Hopefully, uh, the madman will, uh, somebody will knock him out and uh, life could go on as normal. Um, we also, uh, blessings and prayers go out to all the people that have afflictions, that are suffering, hardship in their life, uh, health issues that are hospitals, wishing they could be on the water. Uh, we record these things so you guys could be on the water with us on these podcasts and uh, prayers and blessings go out to all of you. One of my good guide friends, Johnny Miller is recovering from, I think his several heart surgeries. So blessings out to you, John, hope you're listening. Um, and uh, we do this. Uh, I got a great, great, I posted on social media, a great letter from a gentleman the other day and he raved about the hollowed waters podcast and, and he, I was very thankful to it. Cause all the work that we put into these podcasts with my guests and the time they devote and the time I devote and putting them together. Um, if anybody, you know, but looking at our subscribership, it's going through the roof. Um, the people that are listening, the demographics are outstanding. I can't believe it. We did a podcast with the women in fly fishing and the one that just came out with Arnie Balderson on the magnificent Atlantic salmon and sea run brown trout of the world in the Viking rim. So the people are listening and are, we're getting, I'm getting emails from people in Siberia that are listening to it. So uh, it's working. So uh, anyways, for all you trout bump troubadours, you hatch matching code cracking bug craze crusaders, you dirty nymphing ninja warriors, you streamer slinging savages. And of course, at least we not forget you perfect D loop sustained anchor space savours. We have one podcast today for you that's going to match the hatch of all your dreams and all your fantasies. We trust that you will be enthralled with our guest today. He grew up uh, in a fly fishing family. Uh, and he is a master of the dry fly hunt. Today's topic is Montana's magnificent head hunting paradise. The big skies, past, present, and future. Have its trout been loved to death? We think of Montana. We think of superlatives. We think of big sky. We we go crazy with the thoughts of it. Um, but our our guest today is is is. I was told by a good friend, John Grisbeck. If you're listening, John, we made this happen. But I have one client that I love to death. It's John Grisbeck. He's a true headhunter. He's a bamboo guy. He is he he's so passionate. When he sees a trout rise, he practically cries. He gets so excited. And uh, I spent a day with John and his friend this spring, and we had uh, some beautiful sulfur hatches and some caddis hatches, and and uh, he he got some beautiful nice browns with me. But we hunt head hunted these fish for several hours till we figure out their cadence and what they were doing. And uh, so this gentleman I have today, my guest, he grew up in a fly fishing family on the Skagit River in, in Washington. He got the bug in his late teens, dropped out of college to ski and fish full time, skied 150 plus days a year and fished 150 plus days in the remainder through his 20s and early 30s. Spent many uh, winters in the lower floor of Keys while discovering the Missouri River in 1992. He became a fly fishing guide in 2000, Montana Outfitter in 2005, and opened up Headhunters Fly Shop, along with business partner John Arnold in 2008. He focused on the dry fly fishing the mighty most since his arrival. He still gets jazzed and frustrated all at the same time. Wouldn't have it any other way, he says. He is excited daily about the opportunities for learning and progression as he enjoys and appreciates the opportunity to immerse himself into the outstanding resource that the Missouri is. So, 
without further ado. Why do people always say without further ado? I'm getting sick. Of, I got to change that. Okay. And the drone thing, I might get a new spaceship. I might call SpaceX and see if those guys will take me up. That'd be cool. Doing a podcast up there with Elon Musk and those guys. Oh my God. Well, okay. So without further ado, he is the head hunting head honcho on the mighty yet moody mo. He is the dirty dry fly druid of the highest surface feeding forethought needed to fool its fussy feeders. He floats the Missouri's flats like a focused falcon, instructing his clients into the howls of the flea flicking finesse. He is the one and only Mark Raisler. How are you, Mark Raisler? I am doing great, Matthew. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on board. And um, you are out in Montana. You were just in Chicago, Chicago, watching a couple Bears games. And I bet you had Italian beef and all that stuff. Cubs games, yes. Yes, I did have Italian beef, uh, several Chicago dogs, and enjoyed enjoyed Wrigley Stadium. It was re really a lot of fun. And then went to St. Louis and saw a couple ball games down there and enjoyed Bush Stadium. And, uh, of course, had several beers there as well. And uh, now I'm back in uh, my hometown of uh, my current hometown of Cascade, Montana. Shops in Craig, Montana, 20 miles away. But I'm in uh, the safe confines. I was in my backyard here doing some gardening before I came on with you. So excited to be here. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, so how did you, where did you get the baseball fixation? How did, how, oh, did shoot, just in? grew up. I was terrible at baseball. And uh, so I was <laughs> had an affinity for watching baseball. Uh, yeah, I was a little leaguer, of course, and and uh, did not go further. Uh, you know, my my coach always said to me, Mark, I batted ninth, I batted three hundred, as you know, which is which is very low. And uh, when you're in little league, and and my coach would say, like, Mark, go up there and bunt and run hard towards first. Let's hope to make an error. And uh, so, you know, that's what I generally did, and and was uh, occasionally successful. But anyway, that's where my bug came from, was just you know playing baseball and and wanting to be better, and and uh, and being a, a lifelong Seattle Mariners fan. Sometimes you have to travel to see winners, so. <laughs> that's what we've been doing. We're trying to see every baseball stadium, my wife and I. So, and we're about, oh, that's... oh we're like two fifths of the way through. So, pretty Who's excited. got the best hot dogs? Oh, I, do, I, you know, I'd like to say Chicago. I thought the best, the best food I've been to is either at Philly or in Baltimore. Ballpark food. I thought those two were high on my list. Yeah. Philly's a, Philly's a huge. Yeah. That was a and, cool. Uh, I'm a big foodie, as you know. Uh, being a culinary graduate, I'm a big foodie and being a chef at one time. And I'm just, I, I think I spend more time uh, at this, at the kitchen these days. And uh, it just gets, uh, it's an infatuation, just like fly fishing. So Mark, where, um, where did this all start? Where, where did the passion come in? Uh, your bio tells a little bit, but you know, what, what was, where was the turning moments where you picked up a fly rod and you said, this is for me. And, uh, you have you have probably have some of those epiphanies along the way that sure. seals the deal. Yeah, tell us tell us about. Yeah, it. absolutely. Well, I can tell you, it's it's uh, before I had the epiphany at age nine. I remember having a conversation at the dinner table with my parents and my sister, and and asking, you know, what what we were going to be and what we were going to do when we grew up. And I said, well, I'm going to be a full time ski instructor. And my mom said, well, you know, most people, you know, they work five days a week and then they take the, you know, they work uh, in the ski school on the weekends. I was like, well, there's seven days in a week, and why would I just spend two days skiing? So I decided at age nine, kind of what I was going to have a recreation path. And then secondly, when I was in college, before I previously dropped out, you know, manifest destiny, I was a history major, American history major. And I know that all those Europeans say, you know, how 
how can you have a how can you be a history major? What is that? Two hundred years? Yeah. What is that? Like a semester? What is that? An afternoon? A Wednesday class? So I remember saying that. But I recognized that recreation opportunities were going to go away, and I better you know I can either work till I'm sixty five and enjoy some of those uh, activities, or I can. Oh, you can hear my cat in the background there, or or I can just do it now. You know, so I just chose to, you know, I, I'm going to recreate first and, you know, hope the government takes care of me later. Uh, and then I grew up in the fly fishing family. We we're on the Skagit. My dad was a fly fishing fanatic and early adapter of the spay rod. Um, and we were really, oh, in a, you know, obviously, cool. a, a, a hot spot there on the Skagit River in Mount Vernon, Washington is where I grew up. And so I, you know, yeah. we always fished. We had That's bay great. Boats so and, we still had fish. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But then also ocean fished and lake fished. And so. You know, we had five. We had five boats, so we had a lot of opportunities wow. to get in the water. And I didn't really necessarily, you know, wasn't infatuated with it then. But uh, when I when I left college, uh, sophomore year, after that, uh, I was uh, already teaching on the weekends, and then I moved to Packwood, Washington, which is southeast Mount Rainier, and uh, lots of cricks and stuff like that. Skied for the winter, and I didn't want to move back to the city in the summer. So I, I just stayed in this small town of 2000 on the west side of, do you want me to get rid of that cat? <laughs> oh, we can get rid of the cat later. I'm allergic to cats. So I get rid of cats a very a quick way. There too. Yeah. Usually you never see the cat again, but. Uh, <laughs> so I, uh, I stayed for the summer in that small town and there was a couple put and take fisheries and, and I picked up a fly rod for $10 at the uh, swap meet and a $3 Fluger medalist or knockoff, wow. you know, medalist. And, uh, went about a $10 Fluger medalist. Fly Everybody line. had a Fluger medalist. Of Isn't course. That amazing? Yeah. That was like 1492. Had... Yeah. Oh, Fluger. Yeah. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this is great. And I started fishing, uh, albeit poorly, and then immediately got a, a casting mentor, uh, Pat Ward. And uh, my roommate at the time was just kind of beginning as well. And and a lifelong friend of mine from Tacoma, Washington, also kind of starting. So us together uh, just started learning uh, about the fly. And I had, a, you know, entire summer to fool around in between the ski season. So I just wandered around in my my uh, 1968 Volvo and uh, fished all those little put and take streams on Western Washington. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's fantastic. Where, when was the first trout you caught when you, I, uh, I remember my first trout, like yeah, yesterday. first trout. I mean, first trout on a fly rod, first trout was probably first trout on a fly rod. Oh, shucks. Yeah. Three or four first trout. I'm sure I have some pictures of me much younger. Ah, uh, golly. I bet it was in Packwood on skate Creek. Yeah. Skate Creek. I, my, my roommate had some cool flies from this mentor of mine, Pat Ward, uh, skate Creek caddis, which was just a Antron underwing and a, and a elk or, or deer hair overwing, uh, you know, a trough style. And, um, and I remember, yeah, you could catch those readily. Uh, I don't remember the actual first one because you could really, you didn't even have to be good to catch them. They're hatchery wow. fish and they, boy, they love that caddis. Wow. Yeah. And, and you still have caddis today. And I, and I'm passionate caddis uh, with my mentor being Carl Richards and the caddis guys. And you had LaFontaine out there. We, you know, in the, in the, you know, we don't give caddis enough credit we're going to talk about caddis yeah later yeah. on when we get into hatches but especially you on the missouri these big tailwaters caddis love caddis love uh plankton from from impoundments and they love it and these tailwaters and and it, we're yeah. going to talk about mayflies as a whole but uh and caddis a combination and where they go in the caddis conundrum but um so anyways um 
there you are. There's your passion uh, developing. And uh, so let's let's get into the passion for the dry fly was through that. And we're going to talk a lot about dry fly fishing today because of, of all the great things that 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 John Grisbeck has told me about you. Um, so our big sky, you know, it's the iconic allure. It's, um, you know, you live it. You, you, you live the beautiful, you know, we see the beautiful parts of the living the Montana dream, you know, um, you, you, but then you suffer these winters and you go through some of these winters and um, you, you, you now with climate change, you're seeing a lot more craziness, but you know, Montana today has gone crazy. As you know, the, it's tourist season in full bloom. That's probably why you got the hell out of there uh, for August. Uh, when you said you got you're the month of August, I was like, you were smart. You are very bright. <laughs> I don't guide in August. You are smart, man. Because every, every New Jerseyite is out there and it, it Montana turns into craziness as it is in July, but it is also May's crazy in August. You know, the big allure of Montana. When I first went to Montana, when I was, geez, in high school, uh, it was like, something uh like fictitious you're going to montana you see people in cowboy hats you know you go to dan bailey's you you know you go into livingston and you know you, you think people are still driving model t's and you know back then um bozeman was just a little sleepy little college town with you know restaurants closed at eight o'clock and it was like you know where could i get a burger and it, it was such a shock and even to this day it's not a shock anymore, but you know, Montana is that dream. We dream of the, the the East Coast people move into that place, and now with Yellowstone, the series, you know, we got fly rods everywhere in Yellowstone. We got guns, we got blood, we got fights, we got crazy, you know, women, and you know, it's that dream. You know, the river ends through it. You know, gives you that dream of that. You know, everything is just wild and crazy, and people are nuts, and they're all Trumpers, and you know all that stuff. And you know, it's just it's that it's that thing. You know, and everybody wants to be there. It's a surreal Hollywood, non a non going Hollywood movie. And even Tucker Carlson goes out there. God forbid. And you know, I I saw that clip of him, and I think it was Daly's Bailey's Fly Shop a couple of years ago, where the one guy was beat him up during COVID. And it's amazing. So, you know, it's, it's a fly angler's paradise, but you know, have, has Montana been loved to death? I mean, have we sucked every little piece of blood of, of vigor out of that poor state? You know, what's being where you are, what you do, give us the whole story. Yeah, yeah, I don't. Uh, I, I spent some time in Bozeman and in, at, at MSU and and uh, in the early '90s as well there, and, and that's certainly changed uh, since that time. Uh, but uh, you know, I live in Cascade, a town of 670 people, so we're about 20 minutes from Great Falls and 70 minutes from Helena. And the shop is is in between, and Craig there is in between Helena and Great Falls, 45 miles on either side. You know, we're a couple hours from Bozeman. We're a couple hours kind of from everywhere. But you know, absolutely, Montana as a whole is 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 been much more visited here locally. You know, we see out of area guides and out of area guests um, here on the Missouri in in May and June, uh, July as they all go back to their own resources, whether it be the Madison or Gallatin or Jefferson or any of the other wonderful freestones in the state. And and then August, shucks, you know, we don't we don't have anybody here. 
you know, it gets, the river gets difficult, it's weedy and such. So we are insulated, as I guess what I'm talking about, from the masses still. You know, we don't, in Craig, there are no resources, I'm sorry, not resources, but, you know, there's a couple of restaurants that are seasonal and there are a couple of bars that are seasonal. Uh, our full-time uh, mechanic is, is wonderful. We have an attorney there, three fly shops. Uh, now we have a weed store and a brewery. So we have... <laughs> We're moving up, I guess, flanking our property. Brewery, you probably yeah. live at that brewery. They got probably they have a they have a table at that a seat at that bar because all the That's, Montana guys. When I went to Livingston, there was a place called Montana Beef Company or something. Yeah. Like and and I lived so I I took a month off when I was in the hotel business. I take a month off, and I go to Livingston and um I stayed at Chico Hot Springs. Yeah. And and I go into Livingston. There was a place, couple bars. There was a Manhattan bar or something, and um. And it seemed like, you know, the guys put a good day on the river, floating, busting their ass off. And then they put their their uh, glasses, uh, sunglasses down and they get in and pull up to that bar stool. And that that bartender knew his drink or her drink and um, clients would be right there. And um, yeah, it was a, it was a life, man. It's like living the dream and you live that dream where you row all day. And you get into town, you throw some cologne on you, you pull up to that bar and there's your bar and there's your big steak. And, and then you go home and you do it again and you do it again. And then you every day, what the hell am I turning into? I am turning into <laughs> like a, a drone, a, a, like, um, and if there's a day you got off, you don't know what the hell to do with yourself. You are totally lost because your routine, uh, have you been into one of those like guide fogs where you just oh, sure. wrote yeah, so been, much. Yeah. Yeah. I've been guiding 24 years now. I've been here 32 years here in Craig and, and uh, guiding 24, you know, I'm fortunate to guide 60 days a year and dry fly only now. And, and just June and July and a little bit of October, but I did do 180 days a year for many, many, many years. And uh, that included, I, I was just speaking with a fellow guide the other day and, and uh, who was who was on pace to do 100 in a row, but then he had a cancellation in the middle. But I did 51 in a row is the most I have done guide days. Uh, I always fear the day off the river because, you know, that's a busier day than the day on the river. You know, at least I'm <laughs> catching yeah, you up don't and know looking what at to those do. bills. <laughs> You're like a zombie, man. You like yeah. you don't know what's going on. And you like you feel like I better get back in my boat. It's like the boat is a security. It's like the oh, yeah. boat is is your quiet, peaceful, safe. Today we use words like safe zone. It's yeah. a safe zone. And, and it's like, you know, it's crazy. Um, that's the guy's life, man. And it's not as illustrious as many people. No. Think, oh, you know? shoot. No, there's no, a lot you of shit be going on <laughs> or crazy. Or you got to be crazy. Absolutely. Yeah. crazy. Stay away guys. Um, yeah. Anyways. Well, um, but let me just add one thing here, Matt, the opportunity to be that in tune with the resource, uh, I, you know, I don't guide, like I mentioned, I don't guide as much any longer, but, uh, but I am not in tune with how I was, you know, when you do 180 days on the water, boy, you do 180 days uh, on the water of, of, out of 210, boy, you know, you are, you are, you, you understand the rhythm of the river. You understand, I mean, boy. Yeah, you well know. I mean, you've you've been there, and and uh, so that that I do miss that portion of my life. Is uh, albeit I don't miss the, the 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 work strain and the torment on your body and and your brain and and your liver, like you mentioned. But I do, but I do miss being uh, you know having in, in concert with the river in that manner. You know, that's a very important point you just mentioned. 
Um, so I just, you, you, you've probably listened to the podcast um, uh, with uh, Arnie Balderson that we just did in Iceland. And he talked about climate change. And this man is on the water. This Arnie Balderson has caught more Atlantic salmon than any person on the planet, more than Lee Wolf ever could imagine. This guy goes from country to country every single month of the year. He, he, he's, he's got very deep pockets and uh, he fishes all the time, whether it's in Norway, it's whether it's Russia, he, he doesn't go to Russia now because of Putin, but you know, Iceland and, and, and um, Scotland and Ireland. And now he's in Canada up in Labrador. And I, and I just talked to him and he said something really profound that, I thought, and you know, he guided. He had, he had, he owned at one time 150 rivers in Iceland that he had permits and rights to fish. Wow. And um, he said something that he, he's very, very upset now because he sees things in nature with climate change and things that are going on. And 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 salmon are having a brutal time. Absolute Atlantic salmon, both Pacific salmon and Atlantic salmon, are having a brutal time. And he's seeing his rivers dry up in Iceland, where there's normally always water. Um, and I've been to Iceland, geez, a dozen times and fished with Arnie. And last time I went, the rivers were drying up. He says, Matt, bring rain. And, and, and what's interesting, he says, I, I, I am so in touch with these rivers more now than I've ever been. And the problem is my biologists, the scientists don't listen to me. Scientists don't listen to fishermen. They treat fishermen like they're just a bunch of crazed people that just want to make big tip money and, and, and just whore the river. And that is the complete opposite. If it's not for the fishing guides, it's not for the fishermen, mainly the fishing guides. They are the stewards and guardians of the river. And scientists don't understand it. Um, biologists don't get it. You tell a biologist what's going on in a river, he'll say, well, my study saying that. I don't think that's correct. And when's the last time you've been on that river, biologist? Well, we did a survey four years ago. You know, that's the kind of shit you hear all the time. And, and I'm sick and tired of it, but that's just that's the politics. Now it's all driven by money today, as you know. So they're going to do anything to fuel the fishing license dollars, and they don't give a crap about the fisheries anymore. So we've sold out. The only guys that are monitoring, being in touch with nature, totally focused on nature, are fly fishing guides and fishing guides and hunting guides and everybody that's living it every single day. So that's that's what it's all about. Okay, get off the preach bat. And so, anyways, um. So yeah, with all the hype, you know, I I did um, when I was out there, and I fished Nelson's one, two days, and then I fished Armstrong's two days, and I fished Dupuis two days, and I and I actually had one day on Nelson's where I ran into Jane Fonda and Ted Turner, and Ted Turner was dating Jane Fonda, and I taught these people how to fish the pale morning dun hatch and to grease up a pheasant tail and just let it float in the film, and when you see that monofilament go down, set the hook, and it was a, it was a Dave from it was really incredible day. This is back in the 80s. Uh, Chico Hot Spring was kind of an old dude ranch type place. Now I heard they have a really good restaurant there. Um, Paradise Valley is big time. Everybody's going to Yellowstone, getting eat up by bears and getting beat up by elk and, you know, all the crazy shit that happens when you let a bunch of East Coast people into Montana. Um, but you know, old lady Nelson, she used to always scream at me, you Washington DC boys have no respect. You're running around here and you forgot to lock that date gate. And I've, I tell you one more time, not to lock, to lock that gate. So those were the days that I just loved. And, and, um, I wish they come back and maybe they're still there, but, um, how do you see that transition from the old to new? Or do you think, do you think it's still there? Do you think the really true Montana is preserved or now it's so diluted by so many people, movie stars, everybody coming to Montana? Um, 
How, how's your old take on that, Mark? Well, uh, my take, I, I will give you a parallel with the river here, too. I, people say it's so crowded. I, once you know what every other 50-year-old is going to do, which is pretty easy to figure out if, you, if you're a witness to nature, you can understand male behaviors over, over 40 uh, you can do the opposite. I still believe that. I believe you can do that here on this river. You might not be able to do it in the Madison or the Yellowstone at this point, just because of the pure saturation. But I believe in Mother Nature too. You you have to understand the if the you know the patterns of everybody else. Once you understand the patterns of most, you can do the opposite. And and while that may not be true, you know you might not be able to go to your favorite trail and hike around, and not see anybody anymore. Uh, you know, on some resources, you can still. You just have to pick and choose. You have to be smarter than than everybody else, and and uh, or wiser, or uh, you know, or more logical. I, I I believe that. But you know, the the there are more people here. We're just over a million here, Matthew. Uh, but the winters are still harsh, and nobody really likes it. And the summers are hot and dry. Uh, so, you know, it'll be interesting to see what the, the length of stay of many will be that we have seen, you know, move in at post COVID here. Um, but yeah, that's absolutely more crowded. You know, I had, I stayed in for a fishing outfit association meeting in in, uh, Bozeman last winter, our annual meeting, uh, I pulled into the hotel and they had valet parking. And so that was the first time I had, you know, a valet service <laughs> in, in Montana and, uh, and it absolutely happened in Bozeman. So. Yeah, I, I, some of those glory days are over. Uh, I used to have a winter season pass at, when I lived in Bozeman at, at, at Armstrong, and and uh, just used to love to, to fish Armstrong. I fished Armstrong more than more much more than Depew or or even Nelson. But um, yeah, I, I think you just have to operate on a different level, you know, in a parallel universe. I've always thought I could operate in a parallel universe, and and maybe that's just me and my own mental head. But but I th- I think if you 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 know don't go to a re- you were in restaurant. Don't go to the restaurant at seven o'clock. It's crowded. Yeah, of course it's crowded. You go to the Missouri in June, it's crowded. You go to the Madison in June, July, August, it's crowded. Go in March. You know, you're just going to have to choose fish at night. Go earlier than everybody else. So, I mean, I think there are still paths to freedom and paths to to solace. Uh, Do you have to alter your own schedule? Uh, Probably. Uh, But, you know, once everybody, people are nine to five anglers. You know, or the old adage, you know, you, you want to get on a cool stream, you know, just walk, you know, walk one more mile. So I, I still think some of those things still are there more folks around. Absolutely. I don't have kids. I have cats. Uh, so I'm not trying to populate, you know, the, the planet more. But yeah, shucks, you know, it's what a beautiful place Montana is. I understand why I've been here once I, I came here as a child. You know, my family, my, the Reisler family is from Montana. So um, I've always been introduced to Montana. And boy, uh, I know that those who don't live in Montana anymore, the Reisler family are jealous of those who still do and, and envious of. Uh, of the lifestyle here. So I, I still think that's achievable. Uh, it, you have to take a different path than, than uh, previous generations did. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all possible. It just got to break out of your little box and your little paradigms and, and, and explore. Um, so the legends, let's talk a little bit about the past, the legends, the old school, the Bud Lilies, you know, the Dan Bailey's, you know, Joe Brooks, you know, Charles Brooks wrote beautiful books about the Madison, you know, the, Montana was a, PA transplants, you know, a lot of Al Troth who invented the Alcare Caddis, you know, Ed Shank, uh, my good uh, limestone buddy from the Latorte, spent a lot of time out in Montana. My good buddy, Paul Weimer moved out there. He's up in Yellowstone. He's guiding out in Yellowstone in the park and Spring Creeks. And of course, my good Michigan buddy, Kelly Gallup, he's a slide in guy, crazy Kelly. Hello, Kelly. Hope you're having a great summer. 
Uh, Craig Matthews, he's a Michigan guy from from uh, Grand Haven, and um, he's he's a Montana Yellowstone legend. Uh, Al Cucci, who you guide, you could talk a little bit about yeah, him. Doug Swisher, yeah. Craig Fallon, you know these people. Ken Miata was a good friend of mine from uh, from DC at Trout Unlimited, and he uh, he was a crow, a, a part crow Indian, and he drowned on the Bighorn when it first opened up back in those days. He was a he was a mid eighties, yeah, early mid eighties, you know, and. Um, how any of these people, how, who are your influences? Well, I got my, I got out some books, Matt, Matthew, because I know that, uh, uh, Gary LaFont, I'm a LaFontaine guy and had an opportunity to speak with Gary on numerous occasions working for the trout shop. When I first started working for the trout shop in the, in the mid nineties, uh, uh, Gary was still around and, and loved to fish here. So, um, spoke with Gary many, many, many long late nights. And my favorite fly is a LaFontaine buzzball, which emulates yeah. you know, bits and pieces of dead decomposing bugs and has a mid midge cluster pattern developed yeah. uh, on a pool below Craig called Jackson Rock, even though in proven patterns, he talks about it in at that Mountain Palace, which is a boat ramp and famous uh, uh geological spot on the lower river but uh yeah so i'm a i'm a lafontaine guy you know through and through for you know of course uh, any of that antron stuff that he did you know with the deep sparkle or emergent sparkle pupa and stuff like that and uh so that's 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 and sylvester nems sil nems you know soft oh, yeah. guy, spinner soft so those are kind of my two and spoke with 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 sil a number of times as well also at the trout shop when i worked for the trout shop one of my competitors now um and uh, long, long evenings. And I remember uh, sharing uh, 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 nacho sauce, you know, it was just uh, American cheese and, and non-dairy creamer. And I whipped that up in the microwave and we'd sit around and eat chips and dip them in that. So <laughs> memes. Cheese sauce, yeah. So uh, spoke at length about, uh, yeah, soft taco presentations and, and, uh, and, and of course, spinners um, as well and, and have those. So those are my two my two big guys here locally. And then of course, lots and lots of local mentors as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, what about Neil streaks? Let's talk oh, about yeah. him. Yeah. I've turned into Neil. Yeah. Which is strange. <laughs> uh, no, Neil worked for, uh, for Montana river outfitters in, in Wolf Creek for golly, a couple generations and, uh, absolutely a mentor of mine. And, and, uh, he, you know, he was always first on the river. I try to be first on the river now. And, uh, I, I wasn't first on the river at that time. I was second or third though. Um, but you know his his big thing was you know be to fish first, and uh, I totally agree with that. It took me a little longer to figure that out, but I'm absolutely want to be to fish first. You catch want to catch a lot, catching them after three or four or five or ten people have presented the fly to them is is pretty difficult. And Neil believed, you know, so yeah, of a five mile reach, you know, Neil would row for four and fish the last mile. The fish are where you're at; they're going to rise where you are, uh, and so. Just understanding, I think the greatest thing I learned from Neil was understanding of uh, which fish not to fish to. You know, I think one of your greatest assets as a fishing guide is understanding which fish won't eat the fly and which fish will eat the fly. And uh, yeah. so those are some of the things I learned. And then, of course, read um, all of Neil's books. Uh, the greatest one being... Um, uh, oh, of course, it's going to slip my mind. I don't have it. I whenever I get it off Amazon or uh, eBay, I, I pass it, pay it forward. Uh, small fly, uh, uh, small fly. Uh, well, well, it'll come to me during this. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
uh, but anyway, it's about the Missouri and the and the uh, Smith Rivers, um, two of his favorites. And but Neil has retired, and and uh, you and I spoke before. I, I I have not been able to get a hold of Neil. I do need to reach out. Neil, if you're listening, yeah. we are looking for you. You <laughs> magnificent bastard, you. Uh, you are you are uh, you were, you started writing for Fly Fisherman just about the time I did. And uh, you always were holding up these big, beautiful browns, which yeah. had a little, uh, he had a little tweed cap. He had a tweed British cap that he wore and he had these golden locks coming out the side of him. Yeah. And I said, man, I want to be like that guy in Montana, yeah. living yeah. the dream, living <laughs> free and easy and, and catching big brown trout all the time. And yeah, I was, I was still in the hotel business when I first started writing for Fly Fisherman. I was writing for writing about limestone spring creeks in Pennsylvania. And uh, Neil, you know, his, uh, his article came out, then my article came out. It was kind of interesting back then. Um, but yeah, so if you're listening, we are looking for you. Our drone is going to come and pick you up, you son of a bitch. So get out of that target or whatever you're working and it's time to get back yeah. on the river. God bless you. Um, yeah. So present day today, so all these great legends, you know, they transformed Montana. They made flies. Yeah. They, you know, everybody designed things. Everybody was, Craig Matthews was designing this and, flies for Yellowstone and blah, blah, blah. And today you got COVID. COVID was the big game changer. Um, everybody went fishing. Everybody need to get outside and breathe fresh air so we didn't die from the Chinese virus. And um, I, 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 that has nothing to do. I don't, sorry, people in China. It's just what I said, okay? I'm going to get 15,000 emails from that one. Watch, you watch and see. Tourism. So it came about. Um yeah. I, was it, did you see like a crazy amount or was it, was it a gradual building that, that so many people started coming out to Montana or, or did, was COVID a big game changer? What, what was your impression? You know, a couple things, COVID absolutely on the, in the, you know, the exodus from the inside to the outside. Um, absolutely saw that uh, it, in conjunction with, you know, that I, I will tell you what the greatest change that we've seen on the surface is uh, here locally in Craig. And, and you have to want to come to the Missouri. There's, you know, there's not amusement parks. There's not horse rides. There's not shopping. There isn't anything for anybody else to do other than um, other to fish on the Missouri, as you well know. But what we did see was the change in the guest. Abs uh, it's, it's palpable. And I've been talking to the staff about this and, uh, 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 years ago. And I, I know I've got gray hair and I start sounding like a, you know, an old guy, but I never would have heard this conversation. Guest comes in the morning, guide walks up to guest and says, what would you like to do today? Well, this is, let's say it's July 1st. So we're in the midst of PMDs, caddis, trichos are on the cusp, you know, lots of dry fly fishing, a peak of dry fly fishing. We'd like to catch them on a dry if there's something happening, but if not, we just like to catch a lot. You would have never had that guest. You would have never had that conversation 10 and 20 and 30 years ago, because when you came to Craig, you already understood what the Missouri was about. Um, you were generally a dry. When I started guiding in the, and in, in 2000, I started guiding July 13th, 2000, um, shoot, you know, 75% of the clients were dry fly anglers. I rarely, I just, I had to learn how to indicator fish when I started guiding. So the biggest change from COVID that I can see is the nature of the guest. Yeah. So they've come to Craig. They've seen it either on the internet or an Instagram post I've done or a blog or, or this, you know, this podcast. And they've come because there's an opportunity to catch a bunch here. And the average fish size is great. And the opportunity um, to, to 
do fish with the modern nymphing techniques and just whack them without having a greater skill set is real. And the advancement and the improvement and the education and maturation of our fishing guide here uh, allows you to go catch fish without any, with very low skill sets. And so I would say that that is the biggest manifestation of COVID in our neighborhood. And maybe that's true. I don't know a lot about other resources other than talking to guides in the off season, but that is the greatest change that we have seen here is, is it's not necessarily more people here because there's a limit because we, you know, it, yeah, we have a couple really good months of dry fly and nymphing and stuff, then it gets weedy. So anyway, there's some parameters that, that have wedged people into specific times, but that's what I've seen here. Absolutely. It's palpable. Follow the bouncing bobber. Follow the bouncing bobber. The, yeah. um, it's so boring to just watch and stare at a freaking bobber all day going down a river. Yes, you catch fish. And then those dirty nymphing ninjas, those those dirty so ninjas, we're gonna talk good about at it, Matthew. We're gonna talk, we're gonna talk yeah. about that whole nymphing thing. But you hit it right on the head. Social media, YouTube, everything has transformed the angler to such a high level. Now they come in like to the doctor's office. I need this drug, this drug, and this drug, and I got this disease. Thank you very much. Bye. Yeah. That's basically yeah. what fly fishing yeah. is about. You know, it's kind of sad. Um so let, state of the rivers, let's, you know, let's do a little tour state of the state of what we see today. We're going to talk a little bit about what's going on and, you know, have our trout been loved to death and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I just saw a big news release yesterday. State focuses on research for answers to trout woes in Southwest Montana. Mm -hmm. Wise River, if any uncertainty lingers about whether people care deeply about the Big Hole River and its sister streams, all doubt evaporated last week. A standing room only crowd of more than 100 people joined the Wise River Community Center build his roundtable discussion about the woes last Wednesday of uh, declining trout populations. As expected, occasional tension flew between well-represented well ranching community whose members often divert water from the rivers and those with livelihoods linked to outfitting and guiding. There were more questions and, and, than answers, blah, blah, blah. So it goes on and you know, basically the bighorn is suffering big time. Yeah. And you know, now they're going to do Al, Al Zale, PhD professor at Montana State University. We want to look at things at a number of different stages and times in their life cycle and try to figure out where the problem lies. So it sounds like the old, yeah, we're going to start the engine in one piece by one piece. He said a large number of fish will be tagged and tracked to gain better understanding cause of mortality, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what everybody's going to start doing. Uh, the big hole, the beaver head, uh, that whole system is really in big trouble. You know, they estimate wow. some yeah. brown trout populations down as much as 70%. Um you know, so we're going to talk a little bit about your knowledge of the state of the rivers, but that that is one woe that's really discern, discern, you know, disheartening because I love the big hole and I spent a lot of time on the big hole back in the 80s and 90s. And, uh, you know, it, it was that river where I had the best, best brown trout day of my life. I think we we probably hooked and it's in the story, I think, is in my um Brown Trout Nexus book, um, and um, it was a black woolly bugger day in the rain on the mm. big hole when nothing was happening. And I, we got to the ramp that morning, and the guy told me he tried to talk me out of guiding like three times. Said, "Don't you don't want to go? You don't want to pay me? <laughs> there's no way. There's the water is so low right now. The fishing is so terrible. You don't want to go." Three times I had to beg him to take me down the river, and I had the best day of my life. Because I got to the ramp and I saw big shucks, Terranarchus shucks, big black stonefly shucks on the ramp. 
and golden stones on the ramp. And I and I and I said, "Where are we going to fish?" I said, "I think a big black Kaufman stone or a black woolly bugger." And he says, "Yeah, it sounds good because you ain't going to catch anything anyways." We probably hook. I'm going to say close to 30 trout that day in the 15 to 22 inch range, nonstop. It was yeah. crazy. It was stupid. Um, you know that that river held such great population. Let's start off first before we get into this. I'm going. To, we're going to take a break after we do the rivers. But um, climate change is such a big game changer. You know, people yeah. don't believe in it. It's just weather. You know, depending on if you're a Republican or a Democrat, if you're this or that, you're who, who this, what, whatever. So our society is so divided, and and we're looking at climate change, and we're it's all based on your political standpoints and and all that stuff. But it's making a big game changer. I think part of this problem is climate change and. Climate change is such a powerful force. We're going to talk about the mayfly populations being down. Uh, uh, Patagonia and, and Yvon Chouinard, my buddy, just did a whole thing about, you know, how mayfly populations are down everywhere. And I'm seeing it. You're seeing the Delaware. We're going to talk about the Delaware. Their mayfly populations are down dramatically. Um, so climate change, going into the state of the rivers today, how much do you think climate change is affecting this? Or what's your whole theory on that, Mark? Well, you know, we're a water-driven business, and if it doesn't fall out of the sky, it's awful hard to to raise fish in, in you know, in a mud puddle. So, uh, yeah, I, I absolutely have, have seen some changes here in the in the, in my thirty years here. Um, May five populations. I I don't know if I. I'm not a biologist, you know. I just see with my eyes. Uh, uh, it's hard to say. Yeah. Let me rewind. Speaking with our local biologists here, whether it be with FWP or or uh, 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 private contractors, yeah, we're seeing it in the it, how it's manifesting itself here. Most noticeably is is advancement of weeds and invasive species weeds uh, upriver um, fertilization and uh, and lower water and uh, less flush fewer flushing flows and stuff like that. That's how what I see directly um, yeah, is uh, and uh, I guess warmer winters. I, I the window is below us here, so it, <laughs> I guess I I haven't seen it. I haven't noticed the palm trees aren't growing here yet, so I. <laughs> I haven't uh, I haven't <laughs> noticed it in that manner, but uh, what I see is yeah is weed growth, um, yeah ebb and flow of caddis and mayfly, and I I don't know if I have been here long enough to see huge declines. Although many many people would argue with me that that is absolutely happening, and I'm too deep in the woods to see out. Uh, so that's what I'll say about that. I I, yeah. I do see it in 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 excessive weed growth. Um, but I, that's a number of factors that causes that. Well, yeah. if you're and, looking and at the water. Missouri, the Missouri yeah, we're is stable. stable. We're, we're for, yeah, we have, right now we have 6,500 catchable rainbows per mile, 10 inches or better, double historic yeah. average, yeah. double historic yeah. average browns at 1,500 per catchable per mile. So, you're shucks, doing you know, good. But, but the streams we're going to talk about, which I don't know a whole lot about, I will say in advance, you know, these other resources, I rarely travel to those other places because I live on the Missouri. And why would you go why anywhere? Why would you else? go anywhere? Because yeah, everybody yeah. wants to be on the but, Missouri. You know, the Big Hole, the Beaverhead, the Ruby, the Jefferson, the Madison, the Gallatin, you know, are feed this resource. And so I am concerned um, when those other resources are in, in jeopardy. Yeah, because that is the lifeblood of the Missouri. All those rivers make up the Missouri. So it would be naive to think that uh, what's happening on the big hole is is not endemic of the entire situation, you know, the big picture. 
Yeah. So state of the rivers, I would say Missouri uh, being a tailwater, uh, you have plenty of water. You have a stability situation like a spring Creek. Yeah. You're not going to see dream, the, the declines in mayfly population because that look at the, all the weed growth, all the, all the combination gravel weed growth. You have the ideal, in my opinion, like any tailwater done in a perfect scenario to we have do. everything perfect. Because it's it's like a big giant spring creek, and that's what makes some of these fish so fussy at a time. But you look at the free flowing rivers, like the Big Hole, like the Beaverhead, um, like the Madison, for instance. Look at look what happened in the Madison. I think it was last winter or the winter before when it just dried up one day. I think it was just this previous winter, Matthew. Yeah. 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 And I was Damaged. talking to Kelly yeah. and Kelly, Kelly said, yeah, we're okay. We got guys went out and got them a lot of the fish and it's not as bad as they said it was. And the Browns seem to be doing good. I've been seeing pictures of people out at Kelly's place and the Madison seems to be producing despite that big scare that they had with the almost drying up. Um, yeah. The well, the horn. guide community went out in force as you well yeah. know, and, uh, and the industry and as well as public members, I don't want to discount them, but uh, there was a pretty uh, quick uh, <laughs> help. It was yeah, yeah. It's like I don't got a job tomorrow. Yeah, right, right. Rise up, brother. You <laughs> I better get your today. ass out. Hey, we gonna... gotta we gotta get out there because we got no work. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, yes. I mean, okay, go ahead. A bighorn. What's your impression of the bighorn these days? Boy, shucks. You know, we have obviously a lot of friends down there. The more often I see bighorn fishing guides and outfitters up here in, in May and June and beyond, it leads me to believe that you know they're in jeopardy as well. You know, two or three years ago they had. Uh, I guess it's probably been three or four or five years ago. Shucks lots and lots of small fish. Well, not a whole lot of small fish and very few big fish. You know, that's a, a resource that depends on water and from Wyoming and the, the way they manage the water and the way Montana manages water are, are apparently two different uh, methods. And uh, yeah, yeah, boy, that's a, what a wonderful resource. And boy, that's water dependent too. And boy, they go up and down and, and uh, the beauty of that place is that it's got cool water all year. I mean, that is really the the beauty of that place and that PMD hatch, and um, which is actually over. It happened a little earlier this year. is is fantastic. I mean, for dry fly deal, you can really go get some big brown trout on PMDs down there during that thing. But shocks, you know, it's isn't it all? It's all about water, man. If you don't have water, you don't have insects. If you don't have insects, you don't have trout. Yeah, it is. It is so. And the bighorn, you know. I'm going to bring up a sore subject and, uh, you know, I'm sure I'm going to get emails about this one, but you know, the natives there uh, take a shit ton of trout out of that river and, and they know where to find them. They know where to poach them. I don't think the, 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 the law enforcement is as harsh and, and uh, could, could do a hell of a lot better because the people that I see that go there, they say, man, I seen stuff that would, 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 would make you want to puke. And, they do a lot of damage and we, we got to get a better grip on that because that river does not have the large population, large trout in the river. There's a lot of small ones that we're losing. We're, we're having a tough time recruiting larger fish that it once had. So yeah. I don't know what the solution is there, but I do know that we need to be paying a little better attention to this poaching problem there because it's pretty significant. So uh, I could be wrong, but I know that's, that seems to be the case in that, in that scenario. And it's a damn beautiful river. Um, you know, the park, yellows, the big hole we talked about. We know the woes of the big hole. Um, you know, the brown trout population is down dramatic. And the big hole is very, very dependent on on weather. And that could warm up pretty quickly. And it yeah. gets heated up very fast. And uh, if you have a shallow water year, if you don't have enough water in the system and people are diverting water out of farmers and, and you know, ranchers, 
you got a problem there. And that's one of the main reasons it's a great river, but it it's susceptible to warming. The park, Yellowstone Rivers, I think they're doing um, very good. It seems to be that they, they don't seem to have much of a problem. Um, my good buddy, Paul Weimer out in Yellowstone is guiding 12 days a week. He says he's getting a little too old for that. I says, Paul, you know, eight hours, man, 12 hours, you're out of your mind. You know, that's crazy. Oh, I'm an eight hour guide now. You yeah. got, you got to have yeah. a sense of life, man. You know, it's crazy. And yeah. you do it when you're 20 and you, you know, you're yeah. jacked up on, on Dr. Pepper, but you know, <laughs> Dr. Pepper and Jack Daniels is when you jacked up, but, you know, but you can't do that shit. Um, <laughs> the spring creeks, according to Paul, I just reached out, texted him. He said the spring creeks are doing just fine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Yellowstone flood, I was shocked that the spring creeks are still doing as fine as they are because of the big Yellowstone flood, which was two years ago, I believe. Yeah, I think it was two years. No, last year. Uh, last year I think years. it was last. It, no, it was uh, last, early last uh, 22 spring, spring 22. Yeah, the big flood, man. That was a brutal. Oh, boy. That was yeah. a brutal flood. No, it flood. didn't whack the spring creeks like the like the 89 or, you know, or, yeah, yeah. yeah. That really right? did a yeah. job. Yeah. 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 So that's good to hear, uh, up North Blackfoot and Bitter Bitterroot. They seem to always seem to be pretty Blackfoot's good. Blackfoot's in great shape. What a cool resource. You know, that's a, a testament to, to the community and the ranchers and the farmers and, uh, and the angling and, and resource, uh, uh, specific type people, um, boy, they brought that thing back. You know, that was uh, in dire straits 20 years ago. But what a the Blackfoot project! What a what a cool place. We get over there as often as we can. I try to drag guests over there if they have three or five days with me. They're like, let's go, let's go over and just fish the Blackfoot. You know, let's just do something different. Fish a cool freestone. What a cool place. Anyway, yeah, that place is in great shape. Yeah. Uh, so what, how do you, how do you know, when you fish the Blackfoot, do you do a lot yeah. of, uh, tell me about your techniques when you fish like the Blackfoot. Well, or I've, I can tell you I fished it about 150 or 200 days now. So I'm in that range. I, I haven't fished it nearly enough to be an expert for any, but I know some of the experts that have told me that, uh, the best thing you can do when you fish the Blackfoot, if you can see the bottom, keep walking or keep rowing, just fish okay. a plus. And once I recognize that, uh, my catch rates went up. It, you know, it's it's funny. It's a freestone, and you you think you can get away with just throwing something big and fluffy. And and I have hit the salmon fly day, which was just unbelievable. And I've hit the day before and the day after, which were pretty good. But you know, just in general, drift is king, man. I mean, it's if your fly isn't doing the thing it's supposed to do, they won't eat it. And, and, you know, we get sloppy on a freestone, at least coming from my perspective, you know, because you have to be so precise here. Uh, but what a, what a cool place and what interesting little hatches there are strikos and PMDs and several kinds of different caddis. And, and of course the stonefly populations, you know, the black and the golden and the, and the nocturnal, I mean, just all kinds of stuff and the Hecuba, which is coming up, which I'm pretty excited about. I get over there a couple of days in September and you can throw that, you know, size 12 parachute jobby and they'll eat that, but yeah, micro hatches and, and, uh, 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 or localized micro hatches, you know, you can get a couple on a trico in a spot, and then later you get a couple on a, a PMD spinner, and then and then you're throwing a you know a size you know six chubby. Uh, so for the you know, so what an interesting resource, man. I I've learned just enough to know only fish the A plus and concentrate on that and skip all the uh, skip the rest. Yeah, that's what I know about the Blackfoot. Well, Bitterroot, have you spent any time on the Bitterroot? Not enough. I did when I first was coming over in the early 90s. You know, I'd stop over from Washington and, and fish in the Missoula area and and, uh, and frequent a couple of those uh, establishments at night as well downtown. Um, 
I, I don't know a lot about the Bitterroot, but I know that the couple times I've floated it, wow, what a pretty, wow, what a pretty deal. It's kind of getting the love to death. You know, that Missoula area, Missoula area, yeah. Missoula area has, has, has grown exponentially as, as the Bozeman area has. And, and what you see is the, the effects of, of, of population saturation. Yeah. And we, and ha, do we love all those things to death? Of course, you know, we're probably doing it here on the Missouri as well. I'd be naive not to say that. Um, yeah. But you can see in, in those Missoula, the more the, uh, when I see more Missoula guys over here, I know that they're pretty crowded over there. That's what I. That's yeah. That's a real. That's a real. Yeah, thing. the Linehans. Uh, shout right. out to the Linehans. Well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm sure your business is doing well at this time of year. You're so busy, you can't get you can't talk to those him and his wife at this time of year. It's amazing. <laughs> well, you keep he doing it all my six weeks. Six weeks down here in the spring. Yeah, so we're. Yeah, as many operations do. Yeah, come you got here your hunting and all that stuff. And so, uh, Spring Creeks, did you have you have you fished? Oh, yeah, you said you fished the Armstrongs quite a bit. What was your impression of uh, you know if you're gonna if anybody's gonna come out to Montana to fish the Spring Creeks? What's your advice for them? And and you know, give us a little take. Oh, on very similar to here. Boy, you better understand some slack line presentations. And uh, being on the river is not the greatest time to learn that. That's something you do in your yard or with your casting instructor. Uh, be, you know, put the fly rod in your hand a few times before you go out there. You know, I, it, it has changed because uh, shucks, when I was fishing it actively, uh, I never knew anybody that had thrown a nymph in there. So I, I know that now there is nymphing techniques, and and uh, which I always thought was sacrilege, but you know, again, I'm probably dating myself, and and uh, so yeah, the, shucks, what a, what cool place. I mean, if you want to test yourself, those are a great place to test yourself. Yeah. But and what, what cool history there, and yeah, you know, like I said, I went and used to go into the dining room there with the, of Mrs. Armstrong, and and I don't even know if that was her name, but you know, all the money and the it's you've got to go there because the lore is so great, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah Armstrong and Depew, um, boy, but yeah, make sure that you're comfortable with some upstream presentation style and downstream presentation style and slack line, yeah, and mm -hmm. and if you think he ate it, set the hook. Pheasant tail nymphs, pheasant tail nymphs, and pheasant tail. Oh, I, as you were mentioning, was that this? It must have been this podcast. Yeah, the floating, floating pheasant PT tail, or grease just PT. Don't have enough pheasant it's tail un, nymphs in every size. No, shoot. You probably catch yeah. these fish. But Boy, that's the old state. The, in the meniscus, what? Yeah, shocks. Yeah, and the what, meniscus. What else do you need, really? Yeah. Yeah, the meniscus. Um, so, yeah. And then you got to, you gotta, when you cross from Armstrong's into Dupuis, there's a little pond there. And those ponds, yeah. in, that, in that pond, those fish, you look them in the eyeballs. Oh. And and they Still sit around on. like big <laughs> pets, like, like dogs, like pets. And they stare at you and look at you. And then you reach in your buck and you find a scud and you put a scud or a crest bug on and all of a sudden you can catch a fish. So, oh, yeah, all yeah, limestone no, freaks on the East Coast. If you go out there, you'll love it. Um, they're great. The spring creeks are great. OK, so on that note, we are going to take a break. We're talking about the big sky allure, the Montana dream, the state of Montana, magnificent head hunting paradise, which we're going to get into. Uh, the past, the present, and future, and have its trout been left to death. But we're talking about all these issues with Mark Raisler from Headhunters. And we will be right back, folks. Able Reels have been the pinnacle of real technology for, for decades now. Since Steve Abel, aerospace engineer, started the company in California, 
their technology and their manufacturing, the drag systems are simply impeccable. Um, they work to perfection and everything they do is just a piece of art, including their art design on their real systems. Uh, they're beautiful artists that they have in these series of all the different trout, salmon, steelhead, saltwater fish, uh, utilizing technology with beauty and incorporating designs by Derek Young, Larco, Underwood, other people are simply the state of the art. What's so cool is when you take a picture of a fish, like I often do with Atlantic salmon and brown trout and hold my reels up against them, it's just beauty in the hand and beauty in the fish. Uh, and it just totally relates to the whole experience of why we fly fish and why we love what we're doing. Um, so please look at Able Reels next time you're looking at a large arbor reel and, and look at the difference and look at the quality, the workmanship, another USA made company that gives each reel a hand touch and their boutique made reels, especially the paintings. If you opt for the designs, which can be pricey, but if you're looking for that special gift for someone or you're trying to treat yourself, Able Reels are the way to go. Contact Jeff Patterson and Able, and you will never be disappointed in an Able product. I've had an emotional attachment to Orvis since I was a little boy growing up in the Niagara frontier with my paper route and with my hard earned money, I saved up my money to buy one of the first Orvis graphite rods that came out. To this day and over the decades, I still collect their Orvis graphite rods like the Trico, the Spring Creek, the Far and Fine, the Beaver, and I still fish them. I was an Orvis pro for 20 years in my guiding career that I still guide today. And during that time, they asked me to write a book for Orvis called The Orvis Pocket Guide to Great Lake Salmon and Steelhead. It's an amazing rod, the new Helios. And when they first sent me the blanks for the Helios, I asked them, where are they going with this rod and what do you want to do with it? And they basically said to build the finest graphite rod that is made, and they sure did. Today's Helios 3, the D is the faster tip flex rod, and the F version is the more moderate rod, the mid flex. If you want the finest fly rod to be casted today, get the Helios 3. I use it every day, and I will continue to use it. I can't say enough superlatives about a company like Patagonia. Their designs, their style, their function, their quality, everything they do is amazing for the mountain climber, for the skier, for the surfer, for the fly fisher. I've been a Patagonia pro for over 30 years and I've lived their clothing lifestyle. Practically every piece of clothing I have is Patagonia. My whole family has absorbed their lifestyle and my son, Peter, who is so enamored with the Patagonia lifestyle, worked in their Patagonia corporate store in Washington, D.C. Yvonne Chouinard is an avid spay caster, an Atlantic salmon uh, aficionado, steelheader. He started and pioneered a Tenkara movement here in, in the North America, and he embodies the company, and he's given so much of this company to the earth and to the public. When you buy Patagonia, you give back to the planet. And this summer, I've been really enjoying their lightweight waders in this hot weather we've had. And I warn their waders from Iceland to Tierra del Fuego. Please give back to the earth, buy Patagonia, and you will never, ever for forget the quality of this product.
We are back talking Big Sky, the Big Sky Allure and Montana's headhunting paradise with Mark Raisler. And we were just talking about being uh, two guide horse that, oh, I didn't say that word, but, you know, we're, we're, just, we're just appreciative of everything. And I was just showing him about a bottle of Four Roses that my wonderful client gave me, beautiful bourbon. And we've trained them into giving us the good stuff and along with those little green Benjis yes. and things of that nature, you know, we, we, you know, we, 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 we sort of, we, we deliver and we, 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 we accept and respect the honor and benevolent things that are given as a sign of respect and uh, appreciation. So it is what it is, you know, and just sometimes we're, we're ashamed to admit it, but sometimes, you know, it's a beautiful thing. I give, you give, we, you know, they take, we give, we give, we take. It's like marriage. It's like relationships. It's like dating. And everything has a payback. And, you know, it's it's the complex dynamics of guiding is 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 surreal. But anyways, enough of my jabber, jibber, jab, jibber walkie. Um, let's talk about the state of trout. We, you know, we talk a little bit about what's happening on um, on the rivers and, and you know, the, the state of, you know, they're saying a lot of the problem is climate change and low water and fish getting hammered to death and, and hoot owl restrictions. And um, that's always a that's always a tough one to to grapple on. And the fact that guides from all over the state are coming to your river, the Missouri, that you must share the water when they usually have their only rivers that yeah. they're doing. So all given, albeit that said, we have, you know, our brown trout population tends to suffer on some rivers and, and, and everybody loves brown trout. I wrote a book about brown trout. I mean, it's a, every, you talk to a client and he walks into your shop or you talk to somebody, a guide calls, he says, Hey, I could put you on a 24 inch brown trout or on a dry fly. Ooh, I'm in baby. You know, it's like the magic word today, but they are those nasty, those nasty exotic invaders that threaten all our indigenous fish. So we should not accept them because they're a terrible thing and they're doing so much damage. But we love them. We just love brown trout. But we write articles for Fly Fisherman Magazine talking about how terrible they are. So given all that bullshit said, Okay, you as an outfitter, you as this, what is your Mark Racer's thoughts about all the shit that's going on today with let's get rid of this indigenous species and get except this one, but this one we don't want. This one we like because it was here a million years. I mean, I'm I'm fed up with all of it. I'm getting to the point where I can't take it any longer. It's getting ridiculous. The shit that's going on in fly fishing today is out of control nuts. Um you know, we're, that's all we're talking about is healing things and nurturing things and creating safe zones for indigenous fish. And come on, man, it's fishing. These trout are here. And you can't argue with Mother Nature. If Mother Nature is doing it, what are you going to do? You're going to play God. So we we as humans play God and decide we're going to eliminate this one, but we're going to keep this one. No, we can't keep this one, but we're going to eliminate this one. Uh, I, I'm, I, I can't take it any longer. And, and. What's your what's your whole give me your whole hundred lock stock and barrel about the whole thing, Mark? Yeah, yeah, I, you know I agree with you in, in in many respects there, Matthew. And uh, you know I just read an article on the way back on the plane the other day on in USA Today. I've read in a hundred years. You know they have this the fifty states deal, a little blurb for every state. And the picture was a picture of a rising grayling in the Centennial Valley, and it's you know it was 
Mark out of Billings there and, and uh, the, the grayling, you know, my father was actually part of this uh, restoration project uh, uh, five and 10 years, 10 and 15 years ago uh, in that neighborhood of getting rid of all the, the, the trout that are been introduced and, and reintroducing the grayling there and of 1,350, you know, less than 100 are still alive. Is that a part of uh, global warming? Is it part of, 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 of climate change? Of course it is. Should we... Yeah, try to keep those alive. That is an unfortunate component of us driving cars <laughs> yeah. and, and, and yeah. all the other evils that we do as, as humans. Uh, should we pull out lock, stock, and barrel and try to save it? Boy, you know, my feelings now are, hey, that's, we are, you know, you got to sleep in the bed that you know, was made. And uh, uh, can we change the climate? God, let's hope so. Can we, should we spend needless resource dollars, which are already thin on trying to shoot? We don't save old buildings. We don't save old cars. We don't save any of that old stuff. Why do we want to save a creature and uh, albeit beautiful uh, uh, when it doesn't seem to be adapting to the resource as it is today? I mean, that's kind of where I'm at. That is, that would be it in a nutshell. Yeah. Uh, trying to save stuff that may be unsavable. Boy, it's, is it too far gone? Possibly. Should we focus our efforts on something uh, else? Possibly. Yeah, that's where I'm at there. Well, it's it, to me, it's very zealous. It's very righteous, self-righteous. It's very narcissistic um, that we could feel that we could control nature and we could make an impact we because be we're going to feel good about ourselves when we go to bed and we're going to say, man, I made a difference, you know? Uh, I, I think that's where it's coming from. And that's, you know, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of what's going on today is not like, let's take care of what we have already. If it, you know, the brown trout save fly fishing in America, I, I hate to tell you, and people just, you love those damn brown trout. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. I mean, if, if you had the Catskill school and when the Catskill school and the brook trout were going by the wayside, we had tanners. You can't stop development. Humans will trash things. That's we've destroyed the planet. We will continue to trash things. Yeah. Um, trout are going to be the canary in the coal mine along with it. And if one, one species is doing better than another species, just by the fact that that's the way they are, they're survivors of uh, Darwinian, you know, the evolution of, of nature, the origins of, of, of species. And that happened. So I don't want to get into that because I'm going to get tons of emails about that. Yeah. So I already done enough of that shit. So I'm done with it. So no more bait. You guys can write me all the emails you want. Just tear me <laughs> apart. I don't give a shit. Okay. That's the end of that subject. Okay. Uh, anyways, let's get off that, that train wreck ride. That train. We were on state ride. of trout. Yes. <laughs> you know, the state of trout. We're getting away from that. that bugger. We but so I'm just going to add one more thing. Yes. So if you guys want to restore something and you want to do it, then you God bless you. And TU is very about indigenous fish and, and it's, it's a nice zealous thing to do and, and you could do it. And if it works, God bless you. If it works and, he, and it does, but history has shown it does not work. Once it's broken, you can't really fix it in nature. You can't try to reestablish some Hitler tried to make cows in Poland in the Bialowice forest. Because the Grand Hunter was Gehring, and Gehring loved to hunt, and they wanted, because of the Aryan race, the Aryan race used to hunt the aurochs, a big cow with giant horns on it, that these big rim horns, and they went all over Africa, and they went all over these these crazy geneticists that, that Hitler tried to make this perfect race, perfect the perfect aurochs animal that they could hunt like Aryans, because none of the Germans were Aryans anyways. So the bottom line is they created a cow, 
that look like an aurochs, but it it's kind of deformed looking thing. And now today in the Bialovica National Forest, they have these poor aurochs running around trying to mate with other animals and nobody could accept them. And they call them Hitler's cows and they're still there and God bless them. So you can't, we'll just mess something up. Just let's let it go. Let's take care of what we have and take care of it the best we can because we might not even have that tomorrow. So if you're going to offer $100 for a brown trout head and you want to kill every one of them, you might not have no trout tomorrow. So there you go. Uh, that's the end of that subject. But anyways, tailwater. Let's get into what the passion of what we really like to do. Um, so how did you become a true dry fly purist? Where was you said you it started with LaFontaine and Caddis. Uh, and then, you know, you become a guide. Yeah. And when you become a guide, you just want to be accepted. You want to build clients. You want to be liked. If you want people to like you, you get upset when people didn't like you. What could I do better? Uh, am I being too tough on people? Matt, you yell at too many people. You shouldn't do that. You should, you know, and I used to be a till of the hunt when I first started guiding 20 years ago. I was screaming, yeah. I'd make people walk to shore if they missed a strike on a dry fly hit. You know, where did the dry fly passion come in for you that you said, hey, I'm, this is all I'm going to do. I'm not going to do the nymphing. I'm not going to do all that other stuff. When did that really click in? Well, Wait a this, I mean, this last year for me, it's when I've just, I'm never going to nymph again in my life. I don't own nymphs. I don't have any nymph lines. I don't have any fraud. So that just recently in my career has been able to something I've been to establish. But I was a dry fly guy right out of the gate because uh, I didn't. I was raised in a period where there, was, there weren't nymphs. When I first started guiding a guide friend said hey let me see your nymph box and i and i showed him uh, the corner of a, one of my one of my soft tackle boxes <laughs> had a dozen uh, uh pts hairs ears and and uh large uh you know tens or twelves uh, and a couple princes pts princes hairs ears totaling 12 um so they said oh well where's your nymph box i said i don't have any nymph boxes i said you know you're gonna have to nymph if, you, if you're gonna guide i said is that what people are doing out there i mean i was just naive i should i've been here for eight years already i just streamer fished and dry fly fish so i didn't know any different boy uh uh the very first day i did nymph with an indicator though i, I could not believe how many i didn't know that people were catching that many fish i mean you know with zero to five was a pretty good number for me yeah uh, but I didn't know I didn't know you could catch more than five in an hour. <laughs> Shit, I was talking about all day. So uh, I did. I nymphed uh, my ass off for for a number of years. You know, one of the greatest things about nymphing I've always said was if you want to learn a resource, you know, put a nymph on. You now you know. I only knew a uh, streamer. I just kind of knew you know the top foot or two and and the dry fly just in the top inch. Uh, but if you want to learn a resource, you know, put a sinker on and, and, and dredge the bottom and you'll learn every single undulation and, and, the, and the topography of the bottom of the river very, very rapidly. Um, and so that's, you know, there are some, some assets to that. You know, uh, what I felt, I, I came from ski instruction for 13 years previous. Uh, so I'd already been in, in, in customer service and, 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 and education business and movement pattern analysis and biomechanics and all that shit. Um, so I was familiar. So it wasn't a, a thing for me when I started guiding to, uh, I wasn't afraid of it. Shit, I used to ski around with, you know, 10, 10 year olds on skis. Um, try to keep them, you know, within sight. Now I've got two aging dudes trapped inside my boat. God, that's pretty easy. <laughs> I thought that was pretty easy uh, to, a situation to handle. Um, uh, I've always thought, I've been talking to, uh, 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 who's the Orbis writer? God, I'm getting older. Um, 
Him. Tom, uh, Tom. Oh, Tom uh, Rosenbauer. Yes. Yeah. Who's a uh, mentor My good of mine. buddy, Tommy. I love Tom and done a couple of TV shows with him and traded flies back and forth. And one of my favorite people is Tom Rosenbauer. And, and uh, uh, what a great asset to, to the fishing community. Anyway, um, I've also thought we should create a, a progression in skiing, ski instruction, you know, progression, you know, balance, edging, rotary, and pressure, the four primary skill sets and, and, uh, and then establishing those and, and how to make those into progression so that we get better every single time. And, and why, wh- why don't we do that in fly fishing? But nymphing is part of that progression. You know, deep nymphing is, is the first step in, uh, that you, I think you should take uh, when you learn how to fly fish. Uh, it doesn't really help the cast and the development later, but we eh, do some Band-Aid techniques early. Anyway, uh, and then you go to shallow nymphing, you know, where, you know, when you start nymphing, you just, you know, throw left or right in the boat or, you know, throw up into the pocket in the, in the, uh, in a small creek, if you're in that kind of environment or in a lake, you know, with a chronom and stuff. But um, yeah, and then you go to a little more accurate shallow nymphing, you know, where you've got less weight or no weight and a little pinch on, not a big giant, you know, modern bobber. Uh, and then, and then you go to a dry dropper and then you get to the dry. So, I mean, so I think uh, that's how I've always brought people through fly fishing is through that progression. I think it is it is one of those first steps in the progression because we as a society need to have success prove very very rapidly and uh and boy you put a nymph on and, and have a skilled guide or skilled mentor or a friend or family it doesn't have to be a fishing guide but somebody that can, that can put the allow you to put the fly in the right place with the right bait on there and boy you catch them and, and that can hook you right away you know the progression when i learned and when you learned was not so quick I mean, it was it was many, 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 many more hours and days and weeks and months of of pain until you learned how to cast and about you know insect life and progression of insect life and all that shit. You know you, that took takes a long time. So nymphing is a part of of the progression. Having said that, long winded, I I don't want to do that anymore. I I, I thought it was great. Um, it has built a lot of businesses in Craig and built a lot of fly fishing business and allowed a lot of people to get in the industry, uh, sorry, into the sport that wouldn't have the patience level to do it any other way. But my passion, of course, is, is casting specific and dry fly specific, and it always has been. And there very recently, I've been able to shed just the four or five nymphing days I would have annually anyway, and just go to the dry. But well, when I started, it was just the dry. Yeah. And I got here to the Missouri and I couldn't catch them because my presentation and my drift was terrible and the flies were incorrect as well. But, you know, first, primarily, it's the drift and the presentation, understanding what's actually happening in front of you. And from that day forward, boy, I came here in 1992. I could not catch them. I caught one and I just learned how to double rig with a guide trip on the Yakima River with my father in uh, eastern Washington. The Yakima River are kind of the only blue ribbon stream in, in Washington state. And, uh, I just learned how to, you know, tie a dropper on. So I tied an elk hair caddis on when I got here. I looked at the Missouri and uh, first I was just terrified how big it was. I'd never seen anything like that. I was fishing cricks and stuff, you know, in Washington. Yeah, yeah I didn't fish. I thought this was a slow moving lake. Yeah. So, so uh, uh, I tied on that dropper, got one in the first 30 minutes and did not touch one for the next seven days. And I went home, I went to the library and started checking out books on, you know, tailwaters and stuff like that. And consequently got introduced to La Fontaine and the aforementioned folks. But um, that's where my passion started was, was because I couldn't catch them. I was pretty good at the ski game at that time. Uh, I was understanding the cast a little bit, um, but uh, my fascination was driven because I couldn't get them. And then I kind of spent the rest of my life you know, <laughs> trying to chase that, uh, you know, trace that perfection point. 
Yeah. So, um, nymphing, uh, do, do, is it still big on the Missouri where you, put oh, a what, what are the bobber? What, what's the bobber scene there? What, what's the bob, what's the bobber Huge. du jour? Yeah, no, uh, you know, because like, as we mentioned before, you know, post COVID, the, the nature of our client has changed. Obviously there's long-term clients that have been coming forever and still will come until the day they die. Um, but even some of those guys are just really excited about the NIF because you can have such high catch rates and it's, you know, it's insulated a little bit from the conditions on the surface or what's happening with the bug. You know, shuck people say, you know, dry fly fishing um, is only worth, you know, good 10% of the time, 90% of the time the fish eat subservice. But I think it's more like 99% of the time they eat subservice. 18,000 square uh, 18,000 uh, uh, insects per square meter on our bottom of our river, 18,000 per square meter. There's a lot of nymph life down there. And and a well-presented uh, fly with split shot and the modern, um, you know, Euro-style nymphs now that sink quickly with narrow bodies that actually kind of look a little closer to the insect, even though they're not as pretty. Boy, you know, it's it's huge. I There's fewer dry fly fishers every single day here, Matthew, is really what the deal is because of you can have such high success with the nymph. Right. Yeah. What happens though, is if you, if your fishing guide or your mentor, or the rower, or whoever you're with doesn't push you along the progression, um, you know, well, you catch, go catch 40 on a nymph. You've never been here and shoot. You've only had a fly rod in hand for three days and you come out here and in the boat, you land 40, you know, with a very proficient fishing guide who is, knows exactly where the, you know, drift fishing, we're drift fishing here. And uh, boy, you know, on year four, you come and you only catch 12, which is shit, still a pretty good number. And of course, only three of those are over 20. And, and uh, you, I think your, your, uh, what is, what happens is it can really shorten your stay here on the river in part of your life because you are, you get so used to, you kind of think you're good. You know, shit, I went out there, I catch, caught 40. Can you believe it? I've only been fishing three days. I must be really good at this. You know, and that's just that's just human nature. And I understand that. But shucks, you know, you come and you get, you know, we fish three days. God, we only got 22 for the three days. You know, that wasn't very good. And you don't come again. And you, and you, and you, it, yeah. So there's weird things that happen in nymphing. I mean, it's, it's twisted. Just, it's twisted. It's totally it twisted. It's, yeah. Yeah. And then if you, yeah. Yeah. Boy, can you catch a lot with a nymph? Holy cow. Yeah. Would I still, I mean, the classic, you know, is uh, I'd rather catch one on a dry than 10 on a nymph. I don't know if that's true. 10 on a nymph is pretty cool. I always liked using the net a lot when I was a fishing guide, you know, I was nymphing a ton. Um, but yeah, that take is priceless. You can't, you don't see what's happening. Great nymph fishermen, I will say, Matthew, have always defended great nymph fishermen. A great nymph fisherman is generally better than a great dry fly guy because he understands the water column. Dry fly guys, we're talking about the top inch, right? You know, something that's trapped in the meniscus or trapped done or any of those, you know, weird transitional done or <laughs> those weird stages we've made up over the years with mayflies. Um, man, a great nympher who understands the water column and understands the different current paths underneath there, you know, he's, he's probably a more knowledgeable angler. Nah. It's <laughs> Yeah, you're bullshit. Now you're well, really good. I mean, I've, I'm just that's, calling a spade a spade, Matthew. Is he a more knowledgeable angry? Yeah, to the, the cows here. We're feeding bad milk to the cows. Um, 
Nymphing is a no-brainer. You just chuck the it's shit no out there brainer, and you catch man. a fish. It's like yeah. putting a worm on. There aren't any oh, left. There's on. no it's, dry fly. If you want to come back, Neil Streaks, come back. You're 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 There's talking no to your guys. Dry fly guys. Your guys are gonna <laughs> listen to this and they're like, oh, we like Mark. He likes the nymph. You put your <laughs> you fucking balloon us. on, you go out there and you drag the damn thing, you back row your ass off. You're gonna have oh, shoulder I can't surgery. My, I can't move have shoulder surgery by the time you're 50. Oh yeah. Um, so it is, it's following the bouncing bobber. Um, I'll tell you what, nymphing, I love, okay? I love sight nymphing because right. it's a whole, it's a whole, yeah. uh, a Spring Creek sight nymphing game is the way I was brought up. I, 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 and when I lived in Poland as a little boy, we had the Viepsha River, which was a giant Spring Creek, not giant, it was a small Spring Creek. And I, I had a few nymphs that my, my uncle Stanley Stashu gave me. And he had a wallet, uh, old Wheatley wallet of English flies. And he had a pheasant tail nymphs tied just like Sawyer's with the copper twisted oh, together yeah. with, the, with the Hungarian red pheasants. Red. And, uh, you know, so I, I had to dangle that nymph in front of the trout and lift it up to try to imitate like it was ascending, ascending to the top. The Sawyer-induced take. Then I fell in love with Frank Sawyer. And I fell in love with the writings of Skews. Mm -hmm. And to me... The, the sight nymphing to, and was it was a swing game. It was sort of a lift that you watch the trout's reaction to the fly. That was really exciting. But today, for me to just put a bobber on and let it float down river and you stare at a bobber so you could feed your gluttonous, insatiable lust to grab another 20 trout, mm, it's not nowhere near as watching yeah. a trout rise to a fly and give you the middle finger because you did everything wrong. And then it'll come up again and give you the middle finger again. Then you have to change it. Then you have to look at your drift. To me, that's fly fishing. And, and oh. that's, in my opinion, and you talk to everybody and they will admit it. But nymphing is great. If you want to talk numbers of fish, oh. you want to be 30 for 44 or 44 for 72. Oh. Yeah. And we're Geiger. We're, 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 we're clicker counters now, man. Everything is numbers, numbers, numbers translate into repeat clients, repeat clients, translate into bigger tips, bigger tips, translate into more money, uh, bigger trucks you could buy. And so you could drive your, your girlfriend around in and, and make a it's commercial uh, and be on, on Ram commercial, you know, it's so short-sighted as a fishing guide. It is. It's short-sighted because you, those folks will go away. Because they will, because they will be unsatisfied with the twelve at after. They'll mentioned. be unsatisfied. Yes, yeah, they, they will, and that's what happens. I, I, today? I preach to um, again, old guy. I preach to younger staff and 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 guides, and they'll become they're going to become outfitters. It's like, hey, you know, you have to push this client along. You have to learn together. I mean, you've learned together with your guests over the years. Any guide, any educator has learned along with the student, and and if you don't, if you do not follow that progression you 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 don't have long i have you know night my kind of my newest client for well, i guess i have a couple of new clients right now but you know 19 years and over of my 24 years is most of my clients and and that's because we've we've gone down the path together and if you don't if you're not on the same path boy that you know that guest will go away they absolutely will. So uh, you have to progress along with your guests and there has to be a, a destination and you have to enjoy the journey together and the highs and lows. And the, talk about know. the birds, talk about the wildflowers. I right, post a lot of pictures of, of wildflowers. Of I pick wildflowers. I get yeah. out of my boat to go pick wildflowers. Right. I bring home vases of wildflowers. Right. I'm, I'm infatuated with wildflowers now. Of so I'm, I, I've just posted one on social media. 
yesterday of a big vol. I went to fish my little spring creek and I guided on my little spring creek and I plucked a whole bunch of flowers. So it's the total experience. But you know what really baffles me is how screwed up we are today. And social media is the number one blame. I blame and YouTube and everything else, sensationalism uh, of a quiet sport where we were taught that we blend into nature and we try to be with nature and the dry fly and everything. The nymph too, to, to, to properly nymph and, and to watch the trout behave to your stuff. This is all like, a, we're, we're like children in a little empirical laboratory, a little aquarium tank. And we're watching the trout behave to our dry flies and our nymphs or streamers. Streamers are a wonderful way to catch fish because you go, it's a savage way. You watch the attack, you watch the, you know, a trout has to move to take a stream. A trout has to move to take a wet fly swing. A yeah. Sylvester Neen's soft tackle. He's yeah. got to make a decision. I'm going to make a move to take that fly. Yeah. But when you put a bunch of weight on a hook and call it a fly with all metal and, 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 and all kinds of materials and you dredge and you keep lifting your rod at the end of every dredge. So here, why, here is why I am so adamant to, to Euro nymphing is because I grew up in the great lakes. We are, we are a reputation of snagging fish here. We snag fish. Now we have a technique called chuck and duck. It's called snagging fish. You put an egg fly on, you put a nymph, you put a piece of pencil lead, you dredge it along the bottom. When your rod stops, you set the hook. That's called chuck and duck steelhead fishing. They do it on the Paramarquette. They do it on the Muskegon. They do it everywhere. So I was brought up into a numbers game. If you want a chuck and duck, you could catch 15 steelhead a trip, 20 steelhead a trip. Back in the old days, you could catch 30. Yeah. Now you got to catch, if you catch three or four, because our fisheries have sort of collapsed in many ways, uh, the client's like, well, remember, remember back in 2008, we caught 31 steelhead that yeah. day? Yeah. And I actually sat there and loved it. And now I'm like crying over my sins, you know, things of that nature. And and when you have a technique, when you are blind nymphing and you're lifting your rod at the end of every drift, how many of those fish are lined in the mouth? How many do actually, you're, you're fishing a tiny, tight piece of water. You take a look at the streams where these nymphing, Euro nymphing was invented. The Tatar Mountains, Poland, Czechoslovakia. I wrote a whole article, a whole piece of one chapter about eyewitness Euro nymphing. I witnessed it in the Carpathian Mountains in the early 80s, Nazi occupation. I mean, excuse me, communist occupation. They were fishing for food. They were putting hooks with weight on them, wrapped around them. Feathers, wool, they didn't even really have good feathers. You had to take wool from fabric stores. And that's where a Polish woven nymphing, they wove the nymphs together. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And these guys were putting these 15-foot uh, sapling, uh, birch sapling trees. They swax them. They got monofilament from Germany because you couldn't buy stuff in communist Europe. It was tough to find tackle. And they tied it to the end of the sapling. And you put three or four or five nymphs on in a little tiny mountain stream that had a pocket here and a pocket there. And you drab those nymphs through. You're going to catch something. Yeah. There's trout there. You're going to catch them. Yeah. And they're going to be hooked in the side of the eye, side of the face, yeah. side of the underneath the gills. On their, they're, yeah. they're caught because yeah. I need to feed my family because the communists oh, yeah. don't have any yeah. food in the stores. We don't understand where this technique came from. And then this technique became popularized in the European competitions, in fly fishing competitions. 
numbers. And it was a numbers game, an inches game, an inches game, and it's numbers. That's what fueled this whole mania. Yeah. And then you had books that came across, and we know who wrote those books. And then those books got more popular, and then it fueled the whole thing. Now, if I can't catch 30 trout, I mean, on my river that I'm going to pay good money to a guy, what the hell am I fishing for? Yeah. You know, and that's what, that's where this whole Euro nymphing craze came about. And now it's numbers and then there's really fishy Euro guys and some Euro guys that ain't really fishy, but he's more fishier than he's more fishier. And then we get into who's more fishier than who's fishy. And when does this madness stop? When are we going to realize that, are we actually having fun in this? Or are we having a panic attack in a Euro? <laughs> ladder yeah if i don't okay. catch yeah i'm not happy that wasn't a good trip yeah i i you come off a day and you know you've got 12 what's your view on euro nymphing give me your, your oh i i know very little about it we do have a bunch of euro nymphs in there but we don't there aren't people euro nymphing here so you know we uh, you've been here it's not really a resource where you could generally capitalize on that there are some pretty big falls that would be effective um Drift fishing, drift, yeah, drift fishing where you can get a hundred yard drift with your fly in front of, um, on a shelf line is, is our best. That's how we catch a lot here. Right angle nymphing is what we're doing here. Um, yeah, you know, nymphing now, I, I don't, I, it's, that's, it's not fly fishing. That's, it's a different, you know, you, I don't think you could categorize it. That's, I mean, that is, yeah, it's, that's catching. It's, it's not <laughs> casting. It's not casting. You're using no. 20 foot. Now you're just doing monofilament, which Joe Humphreys right. did back. Yeah, in that's the not fly fishing. He wrote so. articles on my, but no, hey, listen, if you like it, it's good. It, it catches a lot of fish. Hear me out. And I'm going to, I'm going to let, I'm going to say it once and for all. I know I'm going to get tons of emails on this one, but I think it's a wonderful way to catch trout. The fact that you're on the river, trout fishing is, is number one. That's number one, sacred. Number two, if you love to neuro nymph, Tory Collins, all those guys, you guys love neuro nymphing. You catch a shit ton of fish and God bless you. But where is the end that to some means? When do you say, I've had enough? I had a really good day. Is it really numbers based or is it quality based? So where do you find the quality? I think defines the beauty and it defines the, 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 the spiritual satisfaction of knowing I achieved something. And sometimes you don't really achieve when you only catch 12 fish because you should be catching 30 or 40. You yeah, know? correct. And then it just becomes really dark and it becomes dirty and it becomes like drinking. When do you stop saying no to another drink? When does that addiction stop? And, and, and I, to me, if I get skunked, I feel more happier than hell because I steal that fish. I Atlantic salmon fish. I'm an Atlantic salmon fisherman. You do not catch fish when you Atlantic salmon fish. It just doesn't happen. Okay. So I love the chase. If I don't have the chase and the hunt, it, it has no meaning. And and the and the and the dividends and the 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 the, the purulation happens when you achieve something because you finally figured out what that fish is feeding on. You you match the hatch. You did this. You made the right presentation. You you know it's a lot of this you don't see in the nymphing world. You do when you sight fish nymphing. So to your own nymphers, God bless you. Keep doing sight nymphing is beautiful because you witnessed the whole thing. Enough about Europe nymphing. I think it's all wonderful. Keep doing it. Describe the Missouri to me. If, if somebody's coming out to fish the Missouri, describe the Missouri uh, piece by piece. Just tell tell, tell the yeah. um, listeners about the Missouri. Give them a, a tutorial on the Missouri. 
Yeah, 13,000 square miles drainage to, to Holter Dam there. We're the third dam in a row, creating a tailwater, uh, which is w- uh, fishable for about 35 and a half miles of the river that we fish. And it gets below, it gets a little warm, it turns into warm water fishery. Uh, it is, uh, it's very, very large. It is the culmination of, uh, like we mentioned, of the Big Hole, the Beaverhead, the Gallatin, the Jefferson, the Madison, and then all the, the Ruby, then all the, the cricks that come. It starts in, in Monida up there in the Red Rock Creek and becomes the Missouri where we are here. Uh, not a lot of people around living here because the conditions are tough. And it's an unbelievable 12-month resource. It is a resource that, uh, whether it be a rank beginner or an expert, you have challenges at every level. So that's always been exciting. You know, you don't get tired of it because it's too easy. Uh, it is 100 yards wide. It, it is large. Average depth is, oh, four to six feet. Uh, primary, secondary, and tertiary shelves into the middle trough where 98% of the fish live. Uh, they don't live on the shores here because they don't have to hide behind rocks because of the 18,000 insects per square meter. So consequently, this is a river that if it doesn't look dead or alive, whichever stage you'd like to be in, uh, they will not eat it. You know, there are also 50 to 100 insects passing by their view subsurface every one second. If you ever seen here, boy, the amount of, of, of insects um, just in the water column is, is mind blowing. So it is a resource where you can have challenges at every single level. Um, it is, a, like I said, a 12-month resource. We, at least at the shop, the only day that we close is Christmas. I have guided on Christmas Day before. So oh opportunities. God. It's really great because you have the dry fly, the nymph, the streamer, the soft tackle, and now the swing. You know, trout spay is a really big thing here. We are proponents right. of that from, from day one in the trout spay world and, and do a considerable amount of that. So it is a, it is a you know, four-season resource. It's really, really, really cool. The peak seasons are June and July and September. May, June, July, September. Uh, if you don't like people, don't come then. But if you do like fantastic dry fishing, June and July is is your peak season there. Um, yeah, yeah. We it, it's we don't have a variety of hatches like the East Coast, you know, where we have you know twenty seven different mayflies. We have our primary insects are am I breaking into this too soon? We get to this later. Primary no, no, insects no. are uh, you know betas, midge, uh, bluing olive. Well, actually, yes. Let's let's not talk about that because we're going to get into specific head hunting okay. because um, we're going to take a break here, okay. and then we're going to get into head hunting in Missouri, including the okay. including the hatches and stuff. So, on that note, we are talking um, uh, the Missouri and uh, the new promise head hunting paradise, and we're going to make sure that everybody in the world gets to come to the Missouri, so you can have more people in the Missouri. Uh, Mark <laughs> is giving me a look now, like, oh God. Don't you dare. They do don't come. Yeah. Sometimes it's too hard. That's all me. we need is more people who come into the meeting. <laughs> God, I hate you. But it, it is a really special place. And on that note, we are going to take a break and we will be right back. Books and lines have been around since Cro-Magnon Man and Neanderthal Man when they were living in caves and in the Alps in Europe trying to find out how to catch the brown trout that were in the rivers and the Atlantic salmon that were running up the hollowed waters of Europe's rivers. And to do that correctly, you need the finest quality possible. And nothing more is entitled to that quality than Angler Sport Group 
and their incredible portfolio of Daiichi hooks. Daiichi hooks are at the pinnacle of the hook experience from all their dry fly, nymph, wet fly hooks, specialty hooks. I am particularly fond of their specialty dry fly hooks uh, in the very micro minutia sizes. White gaps that allow for the hooking like some of my favorite hooks by Partridge back in the day with Vince Marinero's Mitch hooks, but their designs today are absolutely incredible. Also, Varivas material is absolutely at the top. Their leader systems, their fluorocarbon, their colored leaders, which come in lime green and light blue and different colors, allow you to fool some of the most selective trout, some of the most selective salmon and steelhead in the world. Varivas is by far at the pinnacle. Suppleness, strength, diversity is all encompassed when you use Varivas and Daiichi hooks all at Angler Sport Group from New York. Books are the foundation of Hollowed Waters podcasts. We talk about them in reverence, all the great literature that our sport, our art form, our passion, of hollowed waters and the sport of fly fishing has given us, has its strong link to where all of this has come from. The books that we have featured are in bibliographies in the Hollowed Water podcast series and in the repertoire of the many guests that we've had ever since Hollowed Waters started, starting with iconic guests like Paul Weimer's book, and Kelly Gallops and Simon Gosworth and Rick Kustich and Topher Brown's Atlantic Salmon books and Al Cucci and Dr. Bachman and the list goes on. But basically, what I'm trying to say here in this advertisement is that we need to pay attention to all of these great books. And the best way to do that is to go and sometimes dig into your Amazon or your local fly shops or your local bookstores, Barnes & Noble, and get a hold of them. Um, also, some of the books and some of the experiences I've had with books has been truly the crux of my fly fishing career, like my selectivity, the theory and method of fly fishing for fussy trout, Atlantic salmon and steelhead, and also my latest book, The Brown Trout, Atlantic Salmon Nexus, which details the history and the lore, the tactics, the techniques for these wonderful fish that we love. We would love you to go and experience more, to log in to our website and see the bibliographies we have had and explore your joy of the many authors for the many decades and perhaps centuries that have given their knowledge and their wisdom and their crafts and shared them with you. Hello listeners, this is Caleb, editor and producer of the Hallowed Waters Journal podcast. This episode and all of season three of the Hallowed Waters Journal podcast features music by Dutch EDM artist Arpo. You can find them on Instagram at Arpo Music and find their music on all major streaming platforms. Our thanks to Arpo for the use of their song Floating and for their support of the Hallowed Waters Journal. We are back. Talking head hunting in Montana, the big sky with Mark Raisler from 
headhunters and we're going to be into headhunting right now, but we were just talking at the break on how our body parts are falling apart. And he says, I need shoulder. I need elbow. I need this. I, and I says, I was just, I was sitting for a while in the podcast and on my ergometric ball that I have balls everywhere, like balls in my boat, yoga balls as people call them. But now I'm standing with my podium and my tripod and uh, so I could relieve my L4 and L5 disc. So you uh, back surgeons out there, you are just waiting to get your scalpels out so you could cut me, but I'm not letting it. But Mark says he's got shoulder problems from rowing and blah, blah, this. And I know people with all kinds of problems because of his game <laughs> sport. Being a guide, when you hit 60, your body starts falling apart. But I'm still going and strong and guiding and loving every minute of it. Um, we're like soldiers that, you know, we just, old soldiers never die. They just fade away, but fade we're not away. fading away. You're still a young guy. Drift away. They drift, drift away, in away into the sunset, yeah. like Don Quixote chasing Ooh. big brown trout and rainbows sipping in the surface meniscus. The meniscus. Um, I got one question we're going to take yeah. right now before we get into the, the nitty gritty, the skinny, as they call it today, of uh, head hunting in the meniscus. Uh, it's from Garrett from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And he says, Hey guys, I fished the Missouri now twice and baffled. How tough can those fish get? Any words of wisdom would be appreciated. So Mark, that is all yours, buddy. Yeah. For the dry fly shucks, you know, these are, these are pressured fish, pressured fish, recognize pressure. They recognize bad casting mother nature's greatest uh, influencer is, is negative reinforcement. You know, it's the number one re way that mother nature. So in anything you do on the Missouri, the first 90 seconds of the game, whether it be nymphing or streamer fishing or your dry fly fishing specifically are the most important 90 seconds. It's the preparation for uh, the attack that's important. Any any military would tell you that. Any hunter, you know, we do things uh, while we're fishing that we would never do if we were hunting. You know, you wouldn't walk into the woods and just start lobbing shots off into the, you know, into the blindness. We do that all the time when we're fishing. We neglect the first 90 seconds of preparation and understanding and viewing and uh, to make the appropriate attack. That's my greatest piece of advice for anybody fishing in Missouri is do the preparation. Then the catch rate will increase. Be yeah. patient. Be patient. Yeah, exactly. So when you're headhunting the Missouri and your, your mentality to fish the flats, um, you know, and you have a client in your boat or, you know, you're, you're yourself. Um, sure. These fish, um, are they are your fish tend to be more schooling fish when you have a hatch on or there you have two types of two types of type of fishing on your river yep. it's matching the hatch when you have a full blown hatch which we're going to talk about the hatches so i think before we get into that let's go straight to the hatches and talk about them because okay. you either have hatch specific hatch matching fish that are totally targeting the hatch or you have garbage feeding fish and you have got it's same on the Delaware. It's you have two types. You have hatches or just garbage feeders that pick and pick. So let's go with your hatches from start to end. Uh, let me lead with. I don't know any fly fishing guides here that are hatch matchers. None. I don't know any. So start with that. Our first hatch is uh, the midge. Is the winter hatch. 
sometimes in February, you get a pretty good uh, February, March. You can have uh, fish uh, again in pods or and or singles eating that midge. Commonly singles it has to be a pretty significant calm um, period to have uh, potting fish on that midge. But that goes, you know, shoot, that's a, 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 a an insect that's evident all, all 12 months here. Um, I'm getting crowded by my cat here. I'm doing a podcast cat. Uh, then we have the blue wing olive, uh, which starts in the in kind of mid-April. Water temperature has to be 42 degrees there to have that happen. And that goes through sometimes mid-June, but really first of June. Then we have uh, the PMD would be the next big thing. And that starts the middle of June. And that runs uh, six to eight weeks on any great year, sometimes 10 weeks. And we have, uh, I guess, you know, we have the bicodatus and the trichodatus for the for the betas. And we have, I don't know what kind of zillions of midges. I don't know the names of those. Uh, and the PMD, we have the ephemerella. We have the uh, infrequens and the uh, enormous or the kind of two primaries. And we have the peel evening done, which uh, disregard because no, you can't really catch them when they're eating that at the night. Uh, then we go to the trichorithodes or tri trichorithides. Uh, which is a, a big famous hatch here as well. And um, that mayfly goes from, oh, July 4th until, oh, shucks, sometimes mid-September, uh, sometimes mid-August, but usually that's a six to 10-week hatch. And in, in, uh, mid-June, we also get, uh, we get a Mother's Day caddish, which is a few days. We get a, a March brown, which is a few days. We get a brown drake, which is a few days. But those are just seven to 10-day localized hatches along the way. We get the caddis. We have a kind of two primaries, three, really, I guess, the Dicos moicus, the October caddis, which is a great producer here and later. But we do get the Brachycentris and the uh, Hydrocyche, kind of our two primaries. And, and those last shucks, you know, kind of all summer. Uh, we've had a better than average caddis here this year in the last 10 years. And so it's been fun that's to good. do. Then we get some uh, 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 ants. Ants a big thing here. Uh, hopper is not so much. It's not a hopper river. Uh, when people say, hey, I want to come out for hopper fishing, we send them to a freestone. You say, hey, you know, you may not like this. Um, and then in the fall, we get the betas again. We got a pretty good calabatus. We had an epic calabatus last year. Uh, and that's in that still silty stuff. As you know, there's silt, silters and um and that can be very, very good. Uh, if you see five in the air, put, put on a parachute atom size 12 and you'll get a couple. And if you have a spinner pattern, then even, even more, you can blind fish that. Then we get the October caddis, we get a fall betis, and that's kind of it. Yeah. So that's those a, are the that's a hell of a great fishery. That's yeah, a hell of a great hatch cycle. We don't have a lot of uh, variety, but as, as, as people who fished here, what we have is a lot of the, I mean, blanket hatches, not uncommon, as you well know, on a trico to see an insect every square centimeter spinner on top of the water. And then PMD spinners mixed in and hatching caddis and spent caddis. And it is garbage. Yeah, it's a garbage feeding resource. Yeah, I remember uh, Neil wrote a great yeah. article on the Cali Betis hatch uh, yeah. in that river, and uh, oh. that was that was way back, way oh, be great. thirty years, twenty five years ago. But uh, yeah, the Cali Betis. So let's talk about um, let's talk about um, your mentality when you yeah. get on the flats and you're going to be trying to you know give instruction to a client how to approach these fish and and uh, how do, how do you set yourself up? Do you do you set your boat up? And you know, let's talk about your whole mentality, your whole karma about fishing. I'll give you the whole my whole exact spiel, like I would just give a guest, yeah. to, you know, the exactly. ninety second exactly. version. And yeah, yeah, we're down and across. Yeah, very rarely can we fish effectively upstream to them. So this is a down. We're standing above the fish or parked above the fish in the boat, um, down and across. So some sort of slack length presentation is required, uh, is whether it be a reach cast or a slash S cast or a pile cast or a tuck cast or whatever implement, implementation of a, a slack line cast that you desire. 
most often here is just a big slack line reach recoil deal where you build S's into the recoil the, anyway, of the reach. And uh, uh, so my, uh, here's how I approach every single fish. I, I'm not a Hail Mary guy. Those guys that like to Hail Mary again is like walking into the woods and just starting to shoot rounds because you think there's deer in there or right. you saw one there yesterday. That's just not how you, that's people would laugh at you if you did that when you're hunting. Yeah. Yeah. We do that all the time when we're trout fishing. That is the number one mistake of my, of a guest anywhere on the Missouri is the Hail Mary, you know, rushing in there. Old bull, right. young bull. This is an old bull, young bull. You know, everybody yeah. knows the knowledge. If you don't know that, that gives you something to do later after this podcast. A damn good up. joke. It's a damn good joke. It's, God, it's so true. Old bull wins. Let's give you or tortoise and hare. Look that one up too. Tortoise right. wins. Mm -hmm. um, so I uh, address the fish. I never make the first cast at him. I, I start with zero line out. I, I make a cast five feet from the fish and I drift down and, uh, and then I strip out another couple feet of line. And then I incrementally move the casts over one or six inches, one foot or six inches at a time. It gives me, this is the prep time I alluded to earlier. You have to 90 seconds. The first 90 seconds is where you catch the fish. Yeah. Then you execute the cast after that, but it's the learning portion. I'd say on that third drift, I'm still two feet from the fish. You know, I'm still learning. I'm not casting over him. I'm not putting the fly over. I'm not trying to scare my target before I get there. Don't, as soon as you alert the enemy, they behave differently. So I'm not trying to alert the enemy. Uh, my third cast, oh, it's the fly pulls in a little bit towards the target. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't have known that if I would just hucked it in there, the first cast, I usually wouldn't have enough line out and all the kinds of other issues as well. But my fourth one, so maybe my sixth cast, Matthew is on the fish. I've made five preparation casts. I know I have drifted, you know, my goal is to cast long, drift short, not cast short, drift long. And any of those guys that like to drift in 12 feet to the fish do not catch many. Uh, I mean, 18 inches above and 18 inches below on these surface focused trout is, is, is just fine. So if you can make a three to five foot cast, Neil Streaks in his book, Small Fly Adventures in the West, there it came to me. Small Fly Adventures in the West talks about presentations per minute. Yeah, you can make three presentations a minute. I'm going to make 13. Yeah, but mine are going to be perfect. So now I've drifted over the fish. I've drifted my three or four feet. So now I count back in three or four feet. I pull with the line, you know, pull, measure it coming off my hand, you know, one foot, two foot, three foot. What I get to do now is now I get to make the cast at the same spot over and over and over. I'm not shooting line. I have a measured amount of line. I've made myself a casting length template when I've been practicing and learning about the drift. I don't have extra fly line out. I have just enough to make the cast drift my five feet, you know, maybe two foot above and three feet below. If you want to be really, you know, super spooky, consider it, but you don't have to be, I don't believe. Um, and then, yeah. And just make perfect presentations over and over. If anything, since you're not shooting line, you're holding the line with your index finger on the rod. Yeah. You land short. So what that is, is a method to not make mistakes and making a mistake and showing the enemy that you're near, um, is a, the quickest way to not catch that fish. So it's that preparation period. That's so damn important to me. And if you follow that, you know what, you put yourself in a position to catch them all. The Hail Mary approach, even professional football players on the first play of the game, you know, you don't go, okay, here, okay, boys, what are we going to do? Oh, you're going to run downfield as fast as you can, and then I'm going to throw the ball up and you guys try to catch it. That's not a plan. So what essentially I've described is a small business plan for every trout. That's what yeah. I preach. That's a nice small business plan also. That's how I, that's, and that's, 
that's how I do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's carefully, it's so you're setting up your paradigms that you're working outside, working in from outside of the paradigm, working in. And mm -hmm. uh, th there's only one negatives to that is, um, is that you get bad casts in between that spook a fish. So sometimes. No, no, you're not even casting at the trout. You're five feet away from him and then four yeah. feet. And then, so, yeah. So that's, so that's why I'm, no, I do not know. You're not, casting at the fish because you don't have that much line out right right you yeah. only pull out the line you need yeah yeah so you you the fish does not know you're there when you present yeah. the fly and then you got the client that just goes okay great and goes right on to the fish yeah <laughs> yeah i think a whole method takes about 15 years to learn is what i <laughs> yeah <laughs> i well, do it's, it's, it's hard it's hard to be that patient yeah it's hard to, it's hard and it's a beautiful it is a system that it, it works on my river. I have really fussy feeders. It works on the Delaware, which I fish quite a bit. Sure, yeah. it's it's like the Delaware and the Missouri are identical. That's why everybody on the Delaware is going to be out your is out your way already. Have been there. I think I've met half come. of them already, Matthew. Yeah, half of them already. <laughs> yes, and uh, uh, that, you, Al Cucci and his boys and his whole Al Cucci. Your boy Delaware Joe Sabalos. Yeah, Joe Sabalos. Hello, Joe. <laughs> Joe, God bless you, Joe. Are you listening? <laughs> God the Reverend bless. Joe, Hello. I got Kelbasa. I'm going to see Joe in a week when I come out to a couple of weeks when I come out to our Catskill place. Say hello for me. And uh, I got some got some Kelbasa for you, Joe. So you, if you're <laughs> listening, we're saying hello. Um, everybody in New York talks so loud. God bless us. Um, so um, you do a similar approach, Matthew, is what you're saying. I do, it, I do yeah. a similar approach, the yeah. same identical thing. Yeah. Um, but there's one thing, though things change when you approach. So sometimes that fish has already moved or is he already in the process of moving or is he in the process of not eating anymore? And so it, it's a beautiful approach. It's a systematic approach that is 90% effective, but then you have the what the ifs where sometimes that fish came up once or twice. You only had a shot at that fish and it was gone. So Correct. one of the approaches on the Delaware is if you know how to cast and you know how to make a perfect pinpoint presentation, get on his ass right now before he decides not to feed. If you got a head pop up, you got one good shot or two good shots. You got 30 seconds to get on that fish or he's going to move, change his location. If he's garbage feeding, garbage feeders are the worst because garbage feeders are moving up and down, just picking a little bit of here, a little bit of there. Takes a little pistachio here, takes a little bit of shrimp cocktail, a little bit of carpaccio, moves on. Those fish are bastards. But when you have an, a fish in a location sipping and, and either there's a hatch going on or he's got his strategic best seat in the restaurant fulcrum where everything's coming into play, the bubble line, everything, he's not going anywhere. He lives in that spot. You're his, you're his, you're the unwanted guests in that situation. Um, your system works perfectly well. And, and that's the system that should everybody should adapt to when hunting the flats. But if you have the ability to be extremely competent with one cast or two casts, sometimes you have to get on him right away because he's already moved. You know what I'm not saying? Here. Yeah, not here though. That's wonderful. That's, you know, that's, we don't, that's we're, we're not to that stage of, of fish, of the, the education of the trout hasn't, hasn't evolved to that. Here. I, I totally believe that God, because our you. best, our easiest target is junk feeder by a wide margin. Really? Wow. Oh, shit. You can always catch the junk feeder. You wow. can always catch the junk feeder. Wow. That is yeah, so, so like I said, I've mentioned before, not one of uh, the fishing guides that I know here, which are, you know, like a hundred, 
are match the hatch guides. Not one of them, not one, Matthew, not one. No, because we know what they'll eat. I mean, I fish a 12 parachute atoms a lot. Drift is king here. My business name is get the drift outfitters. You can fool any single it's the drift and it's not, and it's not showing them that the enemy is there's your cat. Tell yeah, me to get on the screen yeah, and say, come, hello. That's right. Hey, you. Well, that's a he's been, He hasn't had anything to say yet. But uh, the other of, cat. What is kind of, wait a second. No, I got to get just... a pick. Hold on. What, what, um, <laughs> what is your beautiful. This uh, is, cat? this is Umi Umi. Yeah. Umi. Wait, wait. What is it? Yeah, U-M-I dash U-M-I. Umi Umi means uh, like kitten or kitty, I think. In hey, Hawaii. Umi Umi. Look yeah. at us here. He's Look not, at us. Yeah, hey, you, I can't see like you. many anglers. Oh, that's there he is. Beautiful. That's a gorgeous cat. What what breed is it? This is a uh, like a this is a blue pointer, which is wow. like got Siamese and yeah, this is a blue point or That's a blue a gorgeous. pointer. That's an absolute. Yeah, he's seventeen. He's mature. He's a dry fly angler. Wow, he yeah, oh, for sure. he's got patience. He's Halford. He's Halford and Gordon all in he's one. A big, yeah, he's fourteen pounds. He's a big mountain cat. Yeah, we grow him big in Montana. Gorgeous, <laughs> gorgeous cat. He's well fed. Okay, I love you. Uh, I'm allergic yet, so yep. I, I I start sneezing the moment I get in the room with that, so I couldn't stay at your place. <laughs> but anyways, so yeah, so that's the beauty of the Missouri. That's it's the it's it's what We're the Delaware so was 20 years ago and 30 years so ago. Fortunate. Yeah, These fish are not so twisted and have evolved no. to being so selective because they get pounded so hard that they become almost impossible to catch, and that's what the Delaware. Yeah. You and one now, of the reasons we, I wrote selectivity is because yeah. of that damn Delaware River. Oh, yeah, I've got selective trout here, right here. Yeah, I've got all that. I've read all the all the switch, Swisher Richard Swisher. I guess Swisher, yeah, Doug was an influence on me too. I meant forgot to mention earlier, took lots of casting lessons. And, and Bruce Richards, another huge casting instructor, essay scientific guy. anglers. Oh, yeah. shit. yeah, Simon Gosworth, another good, good long term, anyway. Um, yeah, we, we don't have to be as selective here. Are those those selective feeders? Absolutely. Do I know where those live? Of course. I rarely stop at those guys. Do you East Coasters? Do I look you into that too? Are you one of those? Yeah, I guess you're, but you're from the other, you're from the other side of the pond. Yeah. Oh, you give me that's a terrible look. <laughs> Matthew. Uh, there's there absolutely are those fish here, Matthew. And you probably found a couple of those, but you know, and you can go find those difficult to catch fish. I never stop at those fish. I I have spent way too much of my life stopping at fish that won't eat the fly. And I roll past those. Like I said, one of the greatest advantages of being on the water a lot is, is understanding that uh, some fish just can't be caught. And, and, and that's, and that's just well, not my target. I tell you There's what guys that love that. I mean, I, 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 I come I out a there. bunch of Delaware river DRC guys that are just yeah. and Joe Sabalos probably uh, love Joe. getting in front of those impossible fish. I, if I can't catch them in like literally 10 or 15 drifts, Matthew, oh, I'm gone. I mean, you're, I, because, you're, you're because, a nympha. Me personally, I mean, because then I just know he's probably uncatchable and why I spent a lot of time not catching fish. I, I, <laughs> I'm interested in getting, and here we're so fortunate where, you know, it's not going to be a mile and a half until I find the next riser. It's, it can be 30 feet. It can be seven feet. It could be 300 yards or three miles sometimes, of course, too. But in these June and July peak seasons with the Mayfly and Caddis abundance, um, shoot, no, it's, you know, and certainly that uh, above. Well, you don't like those finicky ones. See, I, I, I don't. No, I don't. I, I, I want don't. you to put them, me on them all day oh, long. God, no. 
that tortured me. Yeah, I'll, I'll get to that stage. That's would be when I'm a little like when I'm a little grayer. I'll get to that stage. No, I'm interested in just feeding the ones that elite. And of course, difficult situations and all that stuff. I love all that stuff too. But um, let's have a little bit of a achievability in 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 the equation, is what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah, when they're not really rising, they're hard. Yeah, no fun. I, there, there's an opportunity to to have hard fish here, but why? Why would you focus on them? Oh my god! Oh, see, they they make my day. Those uh, and then when if I, I mean, I like them, them too. And if I fool them, oh boy! That's, you know, but when I, mean, I look them in the you, face and say, "See, I you beat talked you. about the philosophy of a fishing guide. We briefly touched on it. Yeah, I mean that's not always smart. I mean, I can put people on fish all fucking day. They can't eat. They won't eat it. But but you know, is that they're not going to come into your that, shop? Is that and say, smart? I want fishing guide. I want we Mark can have some again easy because ones, then a hard one, then a couple of easy ones, and or achievable. Yeah, I like your style, man. I got to take some notes here, man. I, <laughs> I always put the people on the on the tough ones, and when oh, they catch shoot. one, yeah, I've had I had a guy once that said, "I want to fish to all the fish that won't eat it." And I said, "Oh my god, that's me." Find some. I said, "Oh yeah, yeah, we can find a lot of those." There I got to get to do a podcast with that guy. That's yeah. that's my guy. <laughs> He was Delaware River guy. He was. Yeah. Oh yeah, we're yeah, twisted. We're twisted New Yorker. I'm a New Yorker, guaranteed. so we're twisted. <laughs> Very twisted people in New York. You people over there, you're crazy. <laughs> I tell you, you're crazy. Every single one of you. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. I think the technique of of getting in there without making a mistake is is just imperative. Uh, I'm, I'm sure wherever you go, but it's it's it it. it it's also imperative here. Yeah. So when you're, when you're feeding to these, these sippers, you, you really don't have to be so overwhelmed by their cadence and their intervals and, nope. and all the things we're totally fascinated by on Great like drift. the Delaware or spring creeks. Nope. You just have to get that correct drift and you're probably going to catch looking up and Why would yeah. you attribute? What would you attribute that? I attribute, let me tell you what I attribute to. Okay. Yeah. The yeah. fact that you don't have people bombarding them heavily correct. It's as primary. a Delaware or a spring primary or the, the primary Henry's fork. You take the Henry's fork, those fish could oh, be shit. psychotic, okay? That's the same shit. They start identifying the angler. Oh, that's Bob over there. He wears that funny T-shirt. God, I wish he'd stop wearing that. Yeah, they can identify the angler there. And here, not so much. And and your density of rainbow trout and brown trout oh. is insane. Oh, and it, it doesn't seem to be lacking. So when you crazy. read these articles about Montana... And, you know, the the 70 percent, that's appealing to they're talking about the big hole. They're talking about a lot of the Freestone rivers. Yeah. But you have a giant food factory with <sighs> a tremendous head of trout that those fish per capita, per per capita, per mile, per per hectare are competing for food. They're not competing. They're competing <laughs> for the best seat in the restaurant. When Correct. I did my podcast Correct. with Dr. Bachman. Yeah. We talked about the best seat in the restaurant. When you have a fulcrum, when you have everything coming together, the seam, the crease, the bubble line, everything is coming in together where you have these ideal seats in the restaurant. Fish are competing for those seats. If you pluck that fish out of there, two or three seat fish are going to try to move into those seats and based on their alpha preference. So you have that ability on that river to have that. The bighorn once had that. Oh, did but it? There's yeah. something going on with the bighorn. And I think a lot with the bighorn is flows when one year you're having 15,000 oh. CFS, 30, 25,000 C, 20,000 CFS, and then you're dropping down to nothing and back and forth, which is the same problem you have on the Delaware. You you have fish that are are kind of neurotic and have yeah. have adjusting problems. So we got that out of the way. We got your mentality. Reading the water on your river, on a yeah. big tailwater river, the bubble line seems backwater slows. How do you read that water? Number one rule, uh, if you come here, 
find, look towards the sexiest spot you can find and then turn around and fish the other direction. That's, that's the bottom line. Tailwater. Yeah, the fish, we are not bank-centric. So not like a freestyle where you'd be throwing the grasshopper or blind at the shore. We are throwing at subsurface structures. Uh, 18 to 36 inches is what fish are looking for. Some people would stretch that out to four feet, but I think 18 to 36 or 6 to 36 inches for rising fish. A fish will move 36 inches here pretty readily. Um, doesn't ever have to in those massive uh, spinnerfalls or hatches that we have uh, as far as volume. Um yeah, that's 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 how I'd start that. Um, so uh, shallow water. So on on the Delaware, I I've gotten a lot of tutorials on on how Isonikias like to emerge from shallow waters. Yeah, uh, and, and you know some climb up in the rocks. Some are really shallow. A lot of a lot of big insects move in the shallows. Are your fish very tuned into your shallows? Or are they or yeah. they in those sexy spots? Yeah, oh, no, they are. So, I mean, yeah. And I guess to further that first, first comment. Yeah. Yeah. Commonly, you know, we're in the center of the river, you know, there are big, large, you know, acre, two, three, four, five acre wade fish flats in the center of the river that are the appropriate depth for that rising fish. Um, and those mayflies love that stuff. And you can get some, of course, riffle lines for the caddis and, and stuff like that. But understanding what insects live in each run is very, very important, but yeah, 18 to 36 inches, even if they'll rise, they rise readily at 18 to 30. Oops. Sorry kitty um 18 to 36 inches and that doesn't have to be near the shore you know sometimes here that could be you know 40 yards off the shore it really could so um we're looking for but they love the you know subsurface structures so if there's a you know the secondary shelf line in that hatch period uh, anywhere between that and the tertiary shelf line they will be harbor lots of available trout yeah obviously crux points you said uh, uh like confluence points or or fulcrums um they are huge obviously yeah that's when the client says how do you know the fish are going to be here like, because they have to be here because look at all the food goes to this one bank and it just collects and collects and collects so yeah no understanding some of those things are very very important for your success here yeah knowing and don't throw at the bank i mean less than one percent of the fish live on the bank yeah. Well, how, how do you describe, do you see a big difference in, in between browns and rainbows and their surface feeding oh. uh, uh, behavior on your river? Yeah, because you start identifying brown trout water or brown trout spot, you know, oh, this is, is a brown trout spot. I have binoculars, great tip. I think everybody should do it. Um, I have three sets of binoculars in the boat, so two for close and one for long. And so you can be able to identify the trout when you're in a situation and, and uh, you know, at close close quarters or even long. Um, binoculars are a huge uh, thing to have in the boat for, you know, your information and your knowledge and identifying fish. Uh, yeah, there's definitely brown trout spots. You know, brown trout love to be behind sticks. Brown trout love to be in, in, you know, brown trout are in those impossible spots that you, you know, we talked about. Um, yeah, you want to find a lot of brown trout spots. They're survivors, they're survivors. Look, look, yeah, they're the ones in high water, they're rising in the reeds and the trees and stuff. I mean, that, yeah, the brown trout, I love brown trout. Brown trout's are aggressive. Yeah, they will, they will, brown trout will move to eat the fly. Yeah. Do you find in school behavior, um, do you find browns feeding in the same schools Not as rainbows? Really. It's an anomaly. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, yeah, it, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll go look for brown trout. I mean, I'm a brown trout guy too. There's lots of rainbows here. It's, you know, six or seven to one. Um, right now it's four and a half to one rainbows over browns, but five or six is a more appropriate uh, uh, historic average. Um I look for brown trout. Yeah, podfish. Yeah, we go catch three brown trout fish and or brown trout spots and have success or not. Yeah, then we'll go to a, some podfish or you know a school of rising fish and and it's rainbow heavy in there. 
of course, you know, those big 18 to 22 inches are the first three or four in that, in that pod. I mean, they're yeah. generally like up geese front. and uh, ducks in the flock, man. The big ones oh, are, man. Oh, are shoot. apex feeders at the top of the oh, school. Yeah. And you want to see your backing, you know, uh, uh, 18 yep. to 18 inch ra- rainbow, a 16 inch rainbow will show you your backing here on, on a pretty good day. Just full of just muscle, 16 inches of muscle. Our growth routes, growth rates, four or five inches a year. Um, so, that, you know, that's a three, three year old, that's a teenager and, and just full of piss and vinegar. Okay, we're talking head hunting on the Missouri and Montana's head hunting paradise. Um, we're going to take our final break and we will be right back with Mark Raisler uh, on Montana. Stay tuned. I've known Marcos at Hairline for a long time since he had his fly shop in Glen Allen in Chicago suburbs, the fly and field. Marcos was a serious, serious fly tying guru, and he had every material known to mankind imported from all over the place. Marcos has since gone to Hairline and has been there for decades now, and he's done such an amazing job. Of, of taking that company and taking it to the upper limit of having a one-stop place where you get the ultimate quality in hooks and materials and feathers and tinsels and designs and tubes. They pretty much have everything for the trout, the salmon, the steelhead fly fisher, the warm water fly fisher, but really they've come into their own, especially in the spay area with the RX hooks, the Daiichi, Alec Jackson hooks, all the intruder wires and materials by Greg Senyo um, and importing some of the best products possible. Um, You won't go wrong by going to Hairline and seeing the product offering they have. They really have pretty much everything. And, And even in the tube section, the HMH tubing and stuff like that, they have gone to the next level. So I highly encourage you to shop at Hairline, Tell Marcos I said hi, and it is truly one of the best um, all-around places to go for looking for that special material that you're in the market for. I can't say enough good things about G. Loomis rods. They're made out in Washington State for over 30 years. And their latest NRX series are absolute bombs. Steve Rajeff uh, designed these Apex Beasts that are just amazing. Uh, their, their new uh, Nano Silka um, resin system uh, is so amazing that it makes them so much lighter and they can cast with so much more power throughout the whole rod. Um, the lightness and, and the power generates are so much more important for the line speed and, and especially if you're doing scandy tapers underhand casting with sinking heads um deep dredging skagits um with with heavier um weighted intruders um they do it pretty much all and even with floating lines like in long belly uh traditional spay casting uh the stamina for these rods and the long anchors in this traditional style is amazing um they're very rich looking and i highly recommend them as does my friend tom larimer their representative out on the west coast so ask for g loomis rods when you go to your fly shop 
or visit them online at G Loomis, but you won't be disappointed. Um, their, their, their whole technology is taking off and it's just simply amazing. If you're a serious spay fisherman and a swinger, uh, you're gonna really enjoy these rods. Hello listeners, as publisher of Hollowed Waters Journal, I'm really proud to bring you this magazine that we've put together and we've been going really strong for the last year. Uh, our accolade winning and amazing in-depth issues full of sumptuous photography, fly patterns and extensive tactical information can be purchased individually now in our archive series for you to read and reread over and over. We treat each topic and article as a mini Bible on the subject that you will explore with your passion and journey for trout, salmon, and steelhead fly fishing. And we'll hopefully rethink your relationship with these fish and make you fly addicted for life. Northern Magazine has the content and depth as Hollowed Waters Journal. Find out what you've been missing and come to hollowedwaters.com today and subscribe. We are back and we are talking head hunting on the surface in the meniscus with Mark Reisler and in Montana. And we are going to talk, we're going to take a question really quick. And then we're going to talk about emergers and stillborns and fly patterns and et cetera. And then we're going to close it up and we're going to have some great stuff. We still got a couple more great things coming your way. Uh, so question number two from Christy from Billings, why does the bighorn in Missouri fish so completely different? The bighorn fish seem less selective. Your thoughts, Mark? Well, that is a great question from Billings. Our fish seem less selective. Is that what you said? Yeah. Why the bighorn Our fish. No, no fish excuse me. The bighorn fish seem um the bighorn fish seem less selective than your fish. Yes. Boy. That's a, boy. I don't. I don't have any. I don't have. I don't have. I. I don't have an answer. It's rare to hear me say <laughs> say that. I don't know. That's. Dude, I don't well, know. I, you know the bio. The bio. Uh, it's probably biomass. Partially biomass related. I mean, they are scud and sow heavy. I yeah. mean, it is the primary there. You know, it's. It's uh, in La Fontaine, uh, caddisflies. They did a stomach pump survey uh, ad hoc in 1981 or 82 and 1839 stomachs pumped and all the stuff in Missouri. The crustacean level at that time was like 5%. The pH change has changed a little bit since then, but it's not 10%, I don't believe, although we fish a lot of them here. Boy, in the bighorn, it's so we have a little, quite a, diff, a variety of biomass as, as, as opposed to the bighorn. That'd be my. That'd be my guess. That's a very good, that's guess. a good, that's a good We're question. We're three times the size of the bighorn, three wider, yeah. three, three deeper and three longer. Um, so boy, you know, that may have, I'm going to, I'm going to take a crack at this yeah. one, Christy. Um, and I'm going to say that's a very good, that, that is sow bug and scud, a man, man sell is sow bug and, uh, and probably hyalella scud and gamera scud heavy yeah. and thick because yeah. that's your typical yeah, yeah. scuds in freshwater. Um, but also, you what you have going on right now is is a growth factor uh, on the bighorn, where you're having a lot of the same year class fish, and the larger fish are disappearing for some reason. I have a tendency to think it's a poaching problem by the natives, but I could be wrong. But a lot of the bigger fish are not surviving. You're getting a lot of that 
10 to 14 inch year class, that 12 to 14 inch year class, that second, third year class. Um, and you're having lots of them. And so fecundity is good. The reproduction is good. So you're having a lot of fish competing at that age group, like a bunch of oh, yeah. youngsters in the classroom yeah. competing for the same answer. And when you do that, tend to be fish tend to be a little less selective. Whereas I think on the on the big uh, on the big mo the big Missouri, you have very diversified year classes. You have big fish, yep. you have a lot of a lot of big fish on the Missouri because the growth factors are so sustainable because of the water is one giant spring creek in a lot of ways, and your water flows don't fluctuate as badly as what has happened to the bighorn as of recently in some instances. So I think your fish be can become more selective based on you have a lot more lot more area and space um and you have more placid waters in some respects in some yeah. some respects yeah. there's a oh, lot of yeah. placid water on the bighorn but you have more placid water with one giant one giant lake spring creek basically and slow moving lake you know, yeah. very slow and it's placid and it's and the fish can be very selective because it's film and when you don't have a when you have flat cellophane film surfaces those fish have all the time in the world to look at your fly to look at that there's no drag you know they're not as, as as selective as the delaware but they have all the time in the world to become selective to a bad cast and you have enough people that educate those fish and good people that good casting people yeah. on the on the missouri that educate fish so that takes the notch of their selectivity since I wrote a book about selectivity, Christine, I hope you have my book. If you don't, you better go buy it on Byron's and Noble. I mean, at, at Amazon right now. That's a self plug for a book sell. Got uh, to. <laughs> but uh, but I think the fish move in direct correlation to the aptitude of the fishermen. So the more we push the fish, the fish push their notch of selectivity oh, up true. one or two degrees. Yeah, and that's directly a a a vertical response to pressure. And when you have that vertical response to pressure, it expands linear, vertically, sideways, and it and the fish is always eluding you because it's origin of the species. It is Darwin's perfect thing, and and brown trout and rainbow trout both abide by those rules. And so I think that that's the case. Hopefully, that as good uh, of an answer as possible. But uh, but I think we addressed it. Okay, let's get back. And if you don't have any, if you want more questions, you could email. Um, and email Mark. I'll give you his email. Yeah. And uh, and you could harass us on social media, whatever you want to do. Um, but anyways, um, let's talk about a merger's uh, importance. So, you know, you said your fish aren't that particular to a fly pattern. And you probably fish a lot of simple fly patterns. Oh, whereas yeah. on the Delaware and other other tailwaters, that's the, the East Coast, Missouri, I call it. We're always fussing with emergers and cripples and Cripple, fishing yeah. spinners fish yeah. on one side, one winged one wing adults laying flat on their side. Um, you know, a lot of distortion. We're we're looking for an edge to a fish that's been beaten. Um, do you fish a lot of emergers? Used to. Um, used to. I used to. Yeah. Yeah. What's the, what's the the first, what I'd say the first 15 years. Yeah. The second 15 years. I'm in the, I'm going to be in the third 15 years now. First 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. RS2 CDC uh, Mayfly emerger in a variety of colors and sizes. It was absolutely my number one fly. Uh, I think you catch them on what you use. I truly believe that. I don't believe that the emerger is as important as the cripple or the spinner here. Yeah. And our fly sales re reflect that. And I don't know if that's a shop attitude or a river attitude, but uh, I don't think it's quite as, it doesn't play as big a role 
Yeah. They, I think they're even more commonly eating sunken spinners when it looks like they're eating that head tail or that tail, uh, dorsal tail rise, you know? Um, yeah, I used to. So, and I, and, and having said that I do fish a lot of soft tackles. So absolutely important. Am I focused on that personally right now? No, but it, yeah, there is a, I don't think it's the majority. The majority are cripple anglers. Okay. Yeah. What, uh, how do you, how do your fish respond to your caddis hatches? Um, are they super more selective to caddis hatches than they are to your mayfly hatches? <laughs> I think they're more selective than the mayfly. The PMD is being the, the pinnacle of the selectivity. Um, but the caddis to address that first. Now, if we throw some sort of downwing caddis, we're pretty good, you know, um, something that lies in the film, uh, you know, a great thing. Any hackled fly, uh, not a terrific deal. And if it is hackled, um, even like the, like the buzz ball, it's it intentionally hackled. You know, we cut that, uh, you know, to half gap length or something like that to, to put that thing in the meniscus in the film. Um, any of that, the cripple, I mean, the cripple could be an emerger is what I've always thought, you know, I mean, it's the abdomen's hanging in the water. It looks like an emergent, you know, like a knockdown or a transitional or a emergent of some sort in whatever, you know, can't get the wing case popped open, any of those reasons. So, I mean, a, is a cripple always a cripple or is a cripple a lot of times an emerger? That's, that's kind of where I'm at on that. I mean, it's hanging in the water. It's can't get through the film. Yeah. Do you, do you have, do you, so on our river here, this is, this is a PhD Caddis River, my Muskegon. Yeah. This is where Rick Carl Richards wrote Caddis Hatches, Super yeah. Caddis Hatches. He wrote uh, Doug Dick Pope's Caddis Handbook with Carl Richards. I, I learned a lot from Carl Richards. I used to fish with him, with him a lot before he died. This river, it, when Caddis are on, you could literally have fits not catching a fish, even being the best of the best fly fishermen you have. So I've developed a te technique called the Statue of Liberty Caddis, where I could drum up fish, even when there's no caddis hatch, to take the caddis by basically as soon as the cast goes out you lift your arm up straight up like you're holding a torch like the lady holds the statue of liberty sure. torch and you're skipping that ovipositing female and as soon as the, the fly lands within one second the trout will come out of nowhere and slam the pattern awesome. literally jump three feet out of the water and that pat I, we did that technique for this last week guiding and we hooked 20 30 trout a day with no hatch whatsoever yeah. fish up to 20 inches in the middle of the day in the middle of the morning on a sunny august afternoon do you have problem with your uh, cast yeah. of mergers yeah, like yes. when they're sipping pupa in the film and they could no, you're, you're throwing no out cares at yeah. them do you but have it is that the finicky period? It's the primary for a caddis. It would be the primary. Yeah. Now you know that you've kind of jog, you've jogged me <laughs> my head a little bit. Absolutely. Our you know our number one caddis pattern is a is a would be a you know a sparkle emergent emergent sparkle you know but we don't sell it now. There's a called a translucent emerger and it's got caribou and and uh, like some sort of a loop dubbing deal you know dubbing loop type deal or picked out and it's got a, a tinsel body and a tag in and it's ribbed and and even then the pupa we float the pupa too um, which has got kind of a partridge soft tackle on it and a couple of side raffia side wings and stuff like that yeah absolutely our number one way to catch fish on a caddis is a fly that you can't generally see yeah our, and those those two patterns lay on their side yeah mm -hmm. yeah and and are just 
they just absolutely, I mean, I, you know, I think the same thing is happening with the LaFontaine buzzball, you know, with the trapped air bubbles underneath, it's clipped short. Um, yeah, something that, that is trapping air and is translucent uh, in, in to the trout. Yeah, highly effective here. It's one of the flies that guides tie on as a second fly. I've kind of gone away from two fly rigs, but um, right. it's currently, I'm sure I'll be back. I've been both ways over the years, um, but uh, boy, yeah. And, and then our dropper would be long, you know, 18 to 24. Some guys run at six inches, but I, I kind of like that long and the stay long stage now too. And I just want that thing to yeah, swim around. Do you, do yeah, you you're absolutely right. Do you What's fish that? a lot of movement to your caddis? You no, no, no. Try it, uh, try it, try it, try it. If you have, but your fish are so easy, so you don't have to do it. No, I mean, I mean, I'm always thinking from client perspective, you know, shucks, I've just trained them how to, not, to not move it, Matthew. <laughs> Oh man, I we're 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 like we're like uh we're like crack addicts. I swing we're like a crack soft addicts a lot. out here. We swing crack a soft addicts, tackle, yeah. twitching and twittering like we just didn't get a fix for four days. Oh and shoot! We're starting yeah. going to detox. That's the way we fish caddis. Yeah. Yeah. you know, there's a very fine line between drift and or uh, twitching and drag. So I, I'm ca- very careful yeah. in how okay. I would instruct that. <laughs> Me personally, I'm done. <laughs> I, I love get, a caddis. I get oh, I get obsessed by you. You got to come out and see my cat. You won't even believe how how whacked out I am on caddis. I mean, it's I make Lafontaine and Richards seem normal compared sure. to the shit that yeah, I'm yeah. doing. It's crazy. Anyways, um, we talked about comparisons to the to the dollar. We've been covering that. Do you change flies often when you're on the hunt? Or you stick with your favorites and well, uh, yeah, you three favorite I, I, flies for the Missouri that you got. I fished five different patterns for patterns. the last six weeks. Five. Tell them. Tell us the five. So a cluster midge, whether it be a Griffiths Nad, originally it was, you know, Griffiths Nad with a CDC win. I see Renee Harrop calls that a Harrop's cluster now. It's interesting. We used to just call that a CDC. Griffith snap. But anyway, um, as I take, I don't have any name flies named after me yet. Um, <laughs> uh, I fished a, that translucent emerger, you know, so a down or some sort of downwing caddis, uh, like a Kings river caddis with a cackle clip on the bottom would be great. Some sort of tent wing downwing, um, caddis, uh, of your liking. I fished a, a PMD spinner and I fished a, what did I, did I miss one? Oh, and a LaFontaine buzzball. Yeah. Those are the five I fished for the month did i say a cdc caddis yeah or a little okay, cdc i'm, I'm coming out listen i'm coming out there next year dude you're i'm gonna change i'm gonna preach cat i'm gonna change the whole i've never i've never we have, i don't have any fish we can't catch yet so yeah, uh, that's, yeah. Uh, i'm gonna find so you're gonna put me on those fish and i'm gonna show you how to catch yeah i'm just saying that yeah, spending four hours on two fish that you don't catch is just not. I don't not, do that. I, I don't spend four clients. hours. I, I get them. I get them on the first cast. I, I get them on the first I cast. Too. I do too, but yeah, <laughs> I yeah. can throw it into the fish's that's, mouth okay, first cast. I'm just saying, John Grisback, John Grisback, if you're out there, you're going to have the competition. <laughs> he knows you're the sponsoring theory. it. You're going to offer the cash prize, and you and him are going head to head. Okay, he knows John, the, my theory. Look this yes. up, John. So you're going to sponsor the competition with a hefty <laughs> paycheck, and him and I are going to go head to head, and it's going to we're going to film it. I we're accept. Film it, okay? Accept, you got it. I'm ser- I'm not dead I serious. I know you're serious. I am. De- I'm sick and tired of hearing about your Missouri shit. I'm coming out there. I'm going to show you. If okay. you can't drift, it's not a place to come. Just like the like okay. any of the spring. We're going to find a fish that won't take any fly. fly. We're going to find two fish that can't take any of our flies, and we're going to go at them. 
I'll see who gets them first. Okay, okay. Um, I got that. Uh, so I got two more questions, and then yeah. we're going to end it up. Um, question from, uh, no, one more question. Dita. Dieter from New York City. If I had to choose one time to fish the Missouri and a chance at a 20-incher on the surface, what hatch period would it be? I keep hitting it at the wrong time, says Dieter from New York City. Oh, June, PMD, early PMD, th third and fourth week of June. Third and fourth. Slam dunk. Dirty? Some so lamb dunk. It's a lot of competition. That is our highest pressure period. It is the busiest two to three week period of the entire year by a wide margin. There you go. So you might not but like that. It's Peter. fantastic. Early PM fish are dumb on a PMD. Brown, big brown trout. The big biggest brown trout on a dry fly of the year. A small dry fly are usually in that first five days after the hatch gets you know, going. So there's the difference between the Delaware and the Missouri is the fish on the Delaware during the sulfur hatch, which is their PMD. They're not dumb and they could be almost next oh, to impossible. You know, and at the be end of the hat, PMD hatch, they're as smart as they get. So, I mean, you see, but yeah. Okay. yeah so so the, they start out real dumb and then they end up uncatchable. So Darwin is, Darwin is working. And then I just have two more questions with you. Yep. And then we get into one minute zip clips, which you better be fun. And you better tell me good things. Um, Leaders and materials. What yeah. what 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 type of leaders are you um, into? Are you 18, 20 foot leaders, 16 yeah. foot, 12 foot? What are you into? What kind of materials leaders. you like? 12 foot. I'm a 12 foot. I'm a Rio guy through and through. I'm a 12 foot 4X and I tie on four to five feet of 5X. Wow. So I am 17, 16 to 17. And then sometimes I get a little crazy. And then the client will say, like, I think this is too long and we'll measure it and it's 22. And you don't have to go that far. A lot of fish are caught at nine foot leaders with three foot of tippet, but a lot more are caught on 12 foot leaders with four or five feet of tippet. Wow. See, I'm into 18, 20 foot leaders and and just hold bastard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's the maturation of a resource. We just haven't got to that maturation process in this resource. So I don't well, You're lucky. You have yeah. a fishery. Oh, that you, you, could yeah, have catch, you could have people catch fish. Or, Correct. You, know, you, go to, yeah. you go to Delaware, you become a psychotic. You know, you, yeah. have, you have phobias when you're done fishing. <laughs> you go home and you look at yourself like, what about Bob? You walk out of your apartment. It's bad, right? Joe, you know it. No, Joe catches fish all over. Joe, Joe okay. we're talking to you, Joe. And Al, and Al, those guys catch fish. Al okay. always catches fish. So you got yeah. nothing to worry about, Al. What's your best Al Coochie story? Oh, I put through you. We, we'd fish the... the, the you could the, tell dirty ones. Yeah, no, no, it's not. No, it's, uh, I've, I've got several. I was just trying to narrow it down. Um, we were fishing. We fished with, 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 uh, with uh, um, Sandy Bing. And uh, yeah, who's long-term DRC guys. God bless him has passed away. Uh, fished the, the flat right underneath the Craig Bridge for the entire day. At the end of the day, Al and I, or the last two or three hours, we're walking sandy fish. We're sitting in lawn chairs in the water. The boat is 20 feet away. He says, hey, let's go see if I cell phone work. We'll call and we'll reverse the shuttle and we can just drag the boat up to the boat ramp here and the car will be there. And I said, great. And so I walk over and it was like a flip phone. So I pushed the button to like flip it open. It happened to be the battery. So the battery flips out of the phone and into the river and is is gone. So <laughs> that's my best. He's like, you know, it, several exp expletives and and I just laughed. I said, Al, it'll, it'll be fine. I'll do we'll this walk. <laughs> but Jesus <laughs> Christ, God damn! What yeah, the hell? Like, are you stupid? You, I mean, no, Al. <laughs> damn stupid! I guy. just laughed. I said, man, I'm sorry, Al. Yeah, you should have walked over there and got your own phone. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. There yeah. you go. 
Okay, this must come to an end, folks. We had a great time, but now we have the one-minute zip clips, or I call them 30-second-minute zip clips, uh, that I ask you a question, a few questions. It's like my doer's profile. Anyways, I ask you pretty fun questions. You know, you always want okay. to talk a little bit. What do you do on your days off when you, something that you like to do the best? Uh, play pinball. I have pinball machines in my garage. I either fix pinball or play pinball. What are your favorite sport? Baseball. I know that. Uh, what is your favorite movie of all time? Uh, the Shining, 1980. Oh, I love The Shining. Yeah, it's great. Thriller. Terrifying. Uh, what is your favorite book of all time? Non-fly Ooh. fishing. Non-fly fishing. Non-fly fishing. Oh, shit. I should know that. Oh, the minds of Billy Milligan uh, about the schizophrenic had 23 personalities. Uh, what's your favorite fly fishing book? God, great question. I, I'm going to say Caddisflies, LaFontaine. Yeah. 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 There's a, a five to pick from. There are hundreds to pick from. Yeah. What is, uh, if I caught you fishing tomorrow on your day off on the Missouri, what would be the rod I see you using? Oh, currently eight and a half foot for five Sage R8. Okay. And real? Uh, oh, the lightest one I could put on there. So like a Sage Click three. And line? Oh, Headhunter Flyline. We have our own Headhunter Flyline. Headhunterflyshop.com is our punch right there. Designed by myself and my business partner for this resource, the Headhunter Flyline, available only at headhuntersflyshop.com. Right. Beautiful. I like it. I like that. Um, yeah. And uh, are you fluorocarbon or mono? I am. I'm mostly mono now, but I I, I do put the five foot of tippet on at fluoro. Yeah. Yeah, commonly here because I want I don't want the thing to float. I want it to sink. So yeah, I want it to be in the water, not on the water. Favorite here. fly floatant? Oh, uh, superpower fly floating by Tiemco in the white tube, overpriced. Everybody's, everybody's using it now. Yeah, I got three bottles. Thank you, Joe Orlando, for giving me three tubes of it. Um, I got it the other day. Uh, favorite meal? If you had one meal before you were going to die, and it was had to be the best meal, what would it be? Tacos. Tacos. What kind of tacos? Oh, a birria. Uh, yeah, some sort of or chorizo or the tongue lagunga. What is your favorite libation? First, um, uh, alcohol. Tequila. Tequila. What tequila? Yeah, uh, any, uh, I've, I've been going through the whole litany of high-end anejos. Yeah, extra anejos. Um, whatever one I'm drinking with a couple cubes of ice is, seems to be the best one so far. Yeah. My son is into those high-end oh, tequilas. Um, so uh, uh, favorite beer? You know, I like a Mexican lager. Yeah, like Soul. I like a light Mexican lager. Yeah. Wine. Red Stripe. I like Stripe. Wine, Champagne. I'm a Champagne. I had a mimosa. I have a guava mimosa right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, friend, yeah, small bubble Champagne. Favorite dessert? Who? Creme brulee. Oh, Creme brulee, yeah, I love it. Pretty hard with a little. Have you ever done what you, my father-in-law pours a little port on it too? Oh, oh yeah, just a little port, and then it melts. I mean, wow, oh, yeah, crazy. <laughs> um, if you had one location to fish, and when you go to heaven, you have one location you have to fish. Which location is going to be? Oh, it'd be on the Missouri. There's one of two spots: the dance floor uh, with PMDs. I mean, I already know what's going to happen when I'm dying as PMDs emanating above me, coming upstream and quiet and sun on my face or, um, 
or it probably the island set below Craig below Jackson rock uh, is probably, that would be my number one. I'd like to be wade fishing in there, fishing PMD spinners. How about one destination location that you could live in? Oh, shucks. I think somewhere in Southern Mexico, I think, yeah, I think I could, I, I like to, if I'm not on the water here, I'd like to, I like to be on beaches. Yeah. Just, you know, eating poke and watching the sunset. With a little senorita, <laughs> no, saying, Mister, Mister, it's no, you like a little tequila. <laughs> oh, I know. Okay, and um, uh, what else was? I think that is pretty much it. So we have summed it up. And oh, favorite movie? Oh, we said Shining. Yeah, you said Shining. Shining. Yeah. Okay, great, Mark. It has been a real pleasure. I can't tell you what a great time I've had. Uh, I am coming out next year. We are having a head hunting competition. Good. Yes. Sponsored by Head Hunting Fly Shop and John Grisback. Yep. Yep. And I'm gonna we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna solve this little riddle here because I'm not I don't buy on some things that you said. But I think I can show it. you I'm gonna try to show you a couple you can't catch. That's really good. Okay, well the, I'm gonna show you that I can catch them right away. <laughs> That's okay. good. That's fair. That's it. Mark, this has been real. So on that note, Mark, any parting words for us? No, thank you so much, Matthew. Uh, yeah, if you're ever in uh, Craig, Montana, look us up at Headhunters Fly Shop. We're right on Fly Shop Row there, closest fly shop to the river. Well, I'm going to be there next year for the headhunting competition, and it's going to be the showdown, like the OK Corral. It's going to be a good one. I think it's going to be fun. <laughs> Sir, it was wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, on that note, uh, listeners, uh, adios, au revoir, au vinozen, dovidzenia, das vidania, and au revoir, and uh, goodbye. 